Ray Dalio, founder of Bridgewater Associates, has written several books on the world of investing and the economy in general, based on his years of experience as manager of the world's largest hedge fund. In the latest of his principal series, Dalio applies his quantitative approach of macro investing to analyzing countries, seeking to identify the factors that lead to strength, such as education and work ethic, as well as lagging indicators, such as a reserve currency that allow a country to spend beyond its means, but ultimately presage a fall from dominance. Notably, Dalio sees China's rise to the top of global power as likely, with America, while ahead, slowly declining. Tonight, we debate the merits of his analysis, as well as the overall validity of a global macroeconomic approach that overlooks key factors such as demographics and forecasting long-term power status. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to get it. The only president who is the president. Hello and welcome to the myth of CNBC and Bloomberg Television. Nick and I were joking about this uh, this show's topic before we just got started, and um, you can you can probably imagine the preconceptions going into a topic like this. Um, but uh, to sort of explain to those who uh, are less familiar with Ray Dalio and Bridgewater Associates. Uh, this is going to be a topic about Ray Dalio's book, uh, Principles for a Changing World Order, and also the general uh, juxtaposition, I think, between his worldview and our recent uh, show's topic, uh, Peter Zion's worldview, in my sort of view. I think they're, they're kind of interesting opposites in their view of China in particular, and also the d- general direction of America. And that was what caught my interest. Uh, and since we had done uh, Zihan a couple months ago, and he's made a lot of uh, news lately, and uh, Dalio's book has come out, I thought it'd be an interesting uh, way to offer a counterpoint to some of Zihan's stuff. But uh, Ray Dalio comes from uh, the hedge fund world. And so that's sort of how he became famous and how he got all the interviews for his book in the first place, because I don't think anyone would really care about some random person's point of view, but this particular book I thought was interesting and it, it's a little bit different than his previous works, which are more focused on finance in particular and just kind of life uh, in general. This one was more about uh, geopolitics and economics, geopolitical economic stuff. And I thought that would be more appropriate for our type of general show format to discuss. And Nick, uh, struggled through part of it. Um, I'll let him speak for himself. Uh, I did manage to finish the book. Uh, Hans, hopefully you took a look at it as well. But uh, I thought it was it was an interesting, somewhat quantitative look at how do you how do you rank empires historically and what causes them to be successful 
and then also go into decline. And what are the implications for countries like the United States, China, and other countries? Yeah, um, I think that Ray Dalio is one of the more intriguing finance personalities in the United States. Uh, and part of it has always been his branding, let's say. It's definitely you know a PR move. It's it's somewhat uh, calculated and 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 um, and theatrical, but he does come across as a very practical uh, guy, uh, very personable, approachable, and seems to understand basic um, consumer economic issues that, uh, that generally a lot of guys in high finance uh, tend to ignore or don't really factor into their overall worldview, not necessarily out of, uh, not out of malice either, or not out of, uh, you know, ignorance or lack of caring. Oftentimes they're, they're so, um, invested in, and sort of, uh, enmeshed in the intricacies and the pure quantitative, uh, operational aspects of, uh, of finance in the United States that basic issues don't really uh, make it across to them. And, you know, low level uh, microeconomic issues are often just sort of left by the wayside, interestingly enough. Uh, you know, th th that's one of the great paradoxes is that they're deeply technical and they're focused on, you know, extremely, uh, extremely fine grained problems, but they're often at a macro level. Uh, it's econometrics at a macro level. You know, that's one of the reasons why uh, finance is often so difficult for people to understand is that many of the people who practice finance in the United States are operating at in such a complex way, and, and the financial system is so complicated. Um, yeah, everything from government regulations to the complexity of the securities we create now to the interdependence of various intermediaries and of various... Uh, insurance companies and various brokerage firms and advisory firms and ratings firms and suddenly it becomes difficult to make sense of very basic what are at their core are actually very basic financial transactions very basic contracts um, and so i think dalio has always you know tried to approach the world as uh, both in his investing as you know more of a simplistic practical guy and you know in his branding towards uh, people out in the normie sphere uh, as a you know down to earth finance guru, um, kind of like Musk in some ways. I've always seen his his approach. Um, I wouldn't be totally fooled by it, but uh, at least he has the capability to to speak to normal things. I, I, think, I think he was also has, and I agree with what you said. I think he's to build on that. I think he's developed a almost politician-like veneer to his worldview, which I think is an interesting uh, thing to analyze because he obviously sits at a seat that has a lot of power and influence. I mean, Bridgewater is, I think, the largest hedge fund in the world, or at least uh, as measured by assets under management at UM. And his job as uh, the, I don't know what they call him, like the chief investment officer, CIO, I think, uh, if he still does that primarily, uh, he's involved. But I think his main job as the founder, especially, 
is to do outreach and public relations for his firm. And part of that is basically just giving people uh, useful information and a, a general sense that, you know, I should listen to this guy and then trust him also and not be offended by him. And so when you're dealing at such large scale, you, you have to kind of take some, some of the playbooks from politicians and that you, you couch a lot of your language very carefully. You don't want to offend certain groups and actually getting to what his true intentions are. And I don't think he's that complicated, complicated of a guy, by the way, but I think he has polished his, his speech a little bit because of his position, because he needs to appeal to as wide of an audience as possible and also not be scrutinized too much by regulators. Uh, and his relationship with China is particularly interesting because uh, his uh, son, uh, at, at the very least, if not other of his children, has studied uh, Mandarin and gone to China and, and lived there. And his relationship with the Chinese has fallen under some scrutiny because he seems to be relatively uh, supportive of that regime as opposed to maybe some other of China's critics in America. And so that sort of diplomatic sort of veneer is interesting to me. He also cites in this particular book, Henry Kissinger and Ian Bremmer. I don't really think they hold a candle or I don't think Bremer holds a candle at Kissinger in terms of his track record of uh, Ian, Ian Bremer is is yeah Ian Bremer is uh, genuinely retarded. Uh, I just want to get that out there. He might be one of the dumbest people um, I've ever had the displeasure of reading. Uh, I mean Zihan for all like his dumb. like no I, I Zihan is not dumb. Zihan is a is a shill, but at least he's intelligent. Uh, Ian Bremer is is a fucking moron. And uh, so, I really uh, wish I've only heard him interviewed. But what have you read? What is what? What give us one example if you could? Because I haven't actually read what he's written. He's just interviews don't impress me. But what what like argument did he make that made no sense to you? For example, so I want to say that um, Bremer was one of these guys in uh, like the 2014. I want to say the 2013 2014 era. Um, when I was when, when he I was learned at his about peak, him. Yeah. yeah, and that's when I learned about him, and he was at his peak. Um, he was hawking these ideas that, like, uh, it was it was in a lot of ways a very um, poorly formed version of Zihan. I think that they might have worked together. Potentially, he was just stealing from Zihan. I've never actually seen them mention each other, so. Maybe they hate each other. But it honestly, in hindsight, it feels like just sort of ripped off Zihan stuff. But he he always pitched these ideas that like America was everything from, you know, like just a place where you make money to America is like the uh, the, the the guiding force in the world that will bring transgender Muslim uh, drone operators to you. And it. A litany of bad predictions he's made for the last 10 years, a litany of poor analyses. He's extremely adverse to anything quantitative. He doesn't seem to understand logistics, which is something Zihan at least kind of understands. Yeah. I've never seen a good I've never seen a good prediction, a good analysis, or even a basic uh, cohesive summary of any issue 
from Remmer. All I remember at- from him, he was like big about this like G zero concept. You know, like the the G seven is like the meeting of the big important countries, I guess. And his whole thing was uh, we're living in a G zero world, whatever that means. I guess that's like a post singular hyperpower United States hyperpower world where there's these other countries, I guess, becoming more important. Other than that, I don't really know what his his point is. Other than yeah, like he's saying, I mean, he's he, sort I, of. I remember a he he wrote the State wrote Department this book. guy. And... I think he's too stupid for the State Department. I, I think that, <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've met some people from the that. State Department. They're not all that smart, to be honest. <laughs> frighteningly, but I I think he's too dumb for that. I mean, he he wrote this book called Superpower that I remember reading, um, and in hindsight, it's just like the the dumbest piece of trash you could imagine. If I recall correctly, he at the time was pitching this idea that um, Marco Rubio and Hillary Clinton had like the biggest grasp on American foreign policy imaginable <laughs> and uh, and that Rand Paul was like a close third. And he basically like framed three different paths for America uh, behind these three people. Um, two of whom are now politically irrelevant. And Rand Paul is like, you know, kind of also not that forward thinking or I've never even seen Rand Paul give like a, a real foreign policy stance on anything other than when he uh, held up um, uh, King Negro's like attempted assault on Syria, or I think it was like that was a his only impressive foreign policy movement. But um, in hindsight, it's it's also triply retarded because uh, Bremer completely missed the fact that uh, Donald Trump had already announced his candidacy when Bremer put out this like $35, like 200-page book. It's just the ultimate ripoff. <laughs> like, you know, like all these predictions he made, literally none of them came true. I don't recall him yeah. ever predicting, for example, that like the United States would uh, do any sort of reshoring or no, would perform. Yeah. No, I mean, at least Zion has been hawking that for a long time and was sort of right. Yeah, yeah I have a very sort whereas, of like, lu- lukewarm, which is actually somewhat of a positive thing for, I think, our show yeah. on Zion in, in terms of his accuracy. I think he's not that bad. Um, I think he definitely has a has an objective or a motive that may not be a He has a motive us, but that makes ahead. you, yeah, he's trying to like just dis- distract you from the fact that, uh, that yeah, America's demographic situation looks good on paper, but you know, you walk over to like the local mall and you see a bunch of Indios, you know, like shitting on the linoleum floor. It, I don't really, you know, yeah, the birth rates up, but, uh, yeah. this isn't looking so hot, my guy, but any, you know, any, at any level, um, Bremer is 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 garbage. Uh, he is a, a five foot one goblin created by the Soviet Union, and he should be, uh, you know, it should be ignored at all costs. I just hope people. Thankfully, he's not nearly as popular anymore. I hope he slits his wrists at some point soon, so he, you know, just kind of. <laughs> 
I, Red's I'm starting to feel today. sorry for him now, but I uh, I don't think he ever was really popular. I think he was really just kind of uh, propped he, he up. He had a moment. He had a moment eh, for sure. Sort yeah. of. I think he made the right friends, and then they kind of put him on the talk yeah. show circuit. Like, oh, tell us about your stupid book. And Zihan, I think, was a little bit – yeah, he definitely had help, but – I think he earned more of his success through kind of YouTube and people like liked actually what he had to say and they would subscribe as opposed to like this kind of push model where he'd get on the fucking talk shows, which is the old model and which is, uh, in my opinion, inferior. inferior, And it, yes. So going back to to Ray Dalio, forget we're talking about, but, uh, Ray Dalio, uh, at least Ray Dalio is like you know rich enough to finance his own media campaign, so mm-hmm. it's that doesn't come across as like deeply cringe, and uh, and it not forced the way that no. a lot of these guys are. And something that I was thinking about um, is that oftentimes you'll get these kinds of books, uh, and they're what I generally they fall into the category. We've talked about this before, like airport read. Um, yeah. You know, what's his name? Neil Ferguson definitely falls into this category, or at least he does now. He's just sort of he, like, he's he's not dumb. Uh, I, I, not, I, Niall I, Ferguson is a there's a lot more depth to Niall Ferguson. Yeah. Than OK, maybe I, I bumped into him okay. once, actually. Um, he, he's, uh, you know, he's average height and but he's he's very very witty uh he's not, okay. not a stupid guy maybe, maybe now maybe now he is or maybe i'm sorry he used to be maybe you know of substance now he's he's like airport read tier uh, okay uh, his work on the, the money history of money was pretty good but go ahead if I'm remembering but, okay, him correctly, but that book, that I know the book you're talking about, that book is like airport tier. Like I don't. Doesn't mean good. it's wrong though, but see, that's that's what's weird about that guy. Like he he did the gigantic two volume history of the of the Rothschilds, and then after that, <laughs> he goes to do you know a series of like unimportant airport paperbacks that that are basically like Wikipedia articles. It's yeah. very, uh, it's just it's it's strange. But anyways. Right. Um, at least, Dal- you know, th- this kind of book falls into that category, you know, airport econ breed, right? Neil, Neil, yeah. Neil, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, Neil, Ferguson. I think it's just Neil. That's what I'm I just say. Neil. Yeah. Um, uh, Bill Ackman, uh, all these types that well, write but, these books. Yeah. But, but don't put they, Ackman and Dalio <laughs> in the same category as an academic author. I mean, there's a big okay. difference between a billion not, dollar hedge fund manager. I'm not, I'm not doing that, but I, yeah. I'm saying that they fall into the category. All regardless of the background of the person, the, these types of books generally fall into what we've called before airport reads. Right, and they they have little trinkets of knowledge. Um, they have little bits of in, cool information, and the rest are like, eh. Yeah, I already know this. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes basic sense, and I guess this is worth forty dollars. However, I will say, yeah, I will say, at least Dalio tries to elevate above that to some extent with this book. Uh, I think yeah. this book is a little bit above the standard airport yes. fare. I mean, there, yes. there's there's some actual math in it. It's not a lot, but it's yes. basically yeah. there's charts and there's. 
something called a z-score which you know is basic statistics mm-hmm. but i mean to, to even put that in you know a random house publication and expect uh a unit sale count more than a thousand is is pretty ambitious and so I think if you understand the sort of context of a publication like this, you have a lot of things to balance. One is you got to get your message out coherently. So don't make it too complicated, but two, uh, make it sophisticated enough that it actually helps people understand something unobvious. Right. But again, you can't make it too much because then you start losing people. So it's sort of like a bell curve of like, how complex do I make this? Like if I put it in the middle, I kind of maximize the number of uh, people who are going to read it. If I make it really, really sophisticated, like actually Nassim Taleb's original books, like I I own like one of his earlier books. It's like super frigging quantitative. Nobody bought that thing. They they bought Black Swan. They bought uh, whatever the rest of it was. Anti-fragile. Yeah, because it's easier to understand. And, and, and I think that the publisher really different. puts a lot of pressure on these guys to actually probably yeah. take out the complexity, frankly. So it's not necessarily the author's fault. Yeah, this is like one rung below Taleb, but Taleb is also in the category of like a uh, guy who had a moment and then was basically at his core like uh, airport read uh, an elevated yes. airport read <laughs> and, and now and now he's I, just like I, I, drunken like donald trump yes, on twitter now uh, it's like <laughs> yes now he's he's uh he's become an elderly obtuse uh, weirdo <laughs> and uh he's not nearly as funny or interesting as he was five years ago yeah or six years ago um oh yeah here here's a deep cut by the way uh long time uh uh gone maybe uh dead co-host uh, alex nicholson was a huge fan of taleb and uh he hawked him on our show many times he was a big taleb guy well, I, I, i'm a fan of his. i was also and, and, a and fan nick of nick, nick nick also liked him too. i i read his yeah i read his airport books and i thought they're really good because they, they are they're they're they're, they're, yeah. they're books that they get they get you to to just think, to think, yeah, and they may yeah, think, yeah, you might yeah. think in ways that you don't normally think, and that's productive. That's a good thing. This book, which I to segue, like Adam needs to explain this book and what is valuable <laughs> in it because I don't doubt, like obviously, this is a successful guy and he has uh, some contrarian tendencies relative to Zog proper, particularly with respect <laughs> to China relations, which is right. what I'm most interested in hearing about. But yeah, I checked out of it. I I could not read it. I felt like I was watching a history lecture on CNBC or Fox Business or some shit. It's just like <laughs> it was like a when I hear merchants start talking about their like deep study of history, yeah. I just roll my eyes. Well, yeah, I, I, I cannot continue. There were just too too many little things that were just like they weren't simplified. They were just made wrong for the purpose of, I guess the general readership or he just steps over so many things. I also have a big problem with this whole, like with this genre of like, Oh, I'm a hard headed practical man. And I'm going to, you know, tell you, point out some obvious truths to you and how it works in the real world. And then they just skip over all the obvious truths that work in the real world that no one is allowed to talk about. 
What? You know, it, it's like, I get it. Obviously, he's not going to talk about, like, look at what the Jews are doing with their money. No. Look at what, you know, so-and-so corporation's policy is with respect to uh, Kill Whitey. You know, these, like, these are obvious things that anyone who had a lot of money on the line would probably be paying attention to. He probably pays attention to. But he's not going to say it. And it just discredits the whole facade of, like, here I am to give you, like, the straight dope. Well, let, let's so, say. Adam, let, why don't, you, why yeah. don't you tell me what like? Okay. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah I, just, I think. Let, give let's, me this feel. Sell, sell me on what I missed. Okay, let, let's say that everything you just said is true, and let's say there are uh, at least uh, a dozen of the books that you like to read on that subject, and let's say those are valuable. I'm going to say that's that's fine, and you can set those aside and 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 read those and incorporate that into your worldview. But I'm also going to say that's not the entirety of how the world works. And I would say people like Dalio have, I think, a very valid point of view as to how things actually work because money matters. And money, frankly, uh, in most contexts, unless there's an actual war, matters more than people with guns. Now, guns, of course, matter. And you know, you don't have to look any further than what's going on in Eastern Europe right now. But Money is a representation of people's resources and time, and it, it, it motivates everybody's actions, whether we want, want it to or not. And so he understands power in that sense, I think, very well, as uh, ascribed by his, the success of his, of his fund and his firm. And I think it's valuable to learn from that lens just as much as the other lens. And I think you can put them together. And that doesn't mean that if you don't mention one or the other, because, you know, the books that, you know, in that first category, I don't think they're going to talk at length about the financial system uh, as it pertains to the economics and just the, the basics of what, what makes companies and, and countries successful outside of the context of Jewish influence and things like that. Um, I think you need to combine all that stuff together. And focusing on what his book looks at, I think it's kind of like just what a basic political economist would try to do. He tries to break down what are the factors that drive success over a long period of time in a group, a, a country or, or an empire. And I think that is, is valuable. Um, there's also some other patterns that he sort of cites as to like what drives revolutions, like what changes the regimes, uh, what are the leading indicators to maybe predict what, what may indicate that's going to happen soon, or at least in the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, and he also goes through just some historical examples and gives, you know, why these were successful, why these groups or empires or countries, did what they did and, and why they succeeded or failed. I think those are all very valid uh, explorations. And that, that's just my broad yeah, defense let of me, it. Yeah. Let me just add to the, I don't have a, like, I, I am admittedly an intransigent ideologue. However, I do read things that are not catering to my prejudices. I, I, I read all kinds of things. I don't, and I'm happy to learn from you know, people in different walks of life with different you know, skills and knowledge. You know, that's not a problem for me. What's the problem for me is when I try to read a book and I just, I can't like the second chapter because there's too many basic mistakes and it's, 
and they're mistakes that seem like they're, they're mistakes he doesn't seem to care about where he's just he's just trying to paint a picture and he doesn't really care if it's right or not well can you give one example something that maybe can you, can you give an example yeah i'll give you one example what one thing that really threw yeah sure so uh one of the things that really threw me off in trying to read this book was how when he was talking about the dollar as the world reserve currency yeah he wanted to have historical context for this but instead of giving the actual historical context for this which was uh the american world hegemony following its war against europe in the early 20th century and its continuing imperial project after that victory Uh uh he he does this thing where he acts like a world reserve currency is some kind of historical thing Whereas it was the product of Bretton Woods system, it's well, a unique historical phenomenon. No, the, the, the pound, the pound was unique. was sort of a a standard prior to that, and prior to that, these, uh, gold. These was, are different. You know, yeah. No, no, big big powers. Yeah, people would would hold money that was used by a big empire. That's true. I mean, he talks about the Dutch. All right. But this is a different system, dude. It's just not the same thing. This is a fractional reserve banking system that works a specific way, and it is based off of American power in the dollar in a way that no previous historical empire. We've never had an empire that was as uh, monetary as this one. It, it didn't. It it's previously like force was much more in your face, whereas American system is it's a different beast. Well, it's just not like looking for historical analogs to it. I don't I don't think is very is very productive. Okay, uh, and it, it, it threw me off, and that, that was just that's that's fine. I mean, this is a say, difficult thing to, to do. Like, let's look at past world. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. It, it's a it's a hard. I agree that it's it's difficult to have a high level of confidence in comparing uh, the hegemons of world history together on the same ledger because they basically have extremely different contexts um, technologically, geographically. There, there's a lot of differences going on. But I, I do think, and I've personally, maybe this is just my bias, but I've always thought it was an interesting pursuit because I've actually wanted to understand what drives uh, success and failure of, of empires. And I'm not the only one. I mean, many people have tried to understand Rome, uh, understand the British Empire, understand the Persian Empire. You know, wh- wherever you want to look. I mean, there, there's tons of people who are interested in this. So, I think it's a it's an ancient, or it's not ancient, but it's it's a it's a well trodden path to try to examine this. And I think he gives a reasonable attempt at it. Doesn't mean it's right, but just because he's not um, comparing uh, Fuji apples to uh, green delicious apples. Uh, I still think they're somewhat apple and it's it's a hard task, and I think that's the main reason why I think we, we need to give them a little slack. It's not so much that it's like a fool's errand. I think it's just a yeah, difficult task. Both of the apples do, in fact, they, they rot over time. <laughs> well, I Plus think that's one of those, like, undisputable. Really Empires advanced, do fall. Right? <laughs> like, have you had this cosmic crisp apple? It's some kind of product of... of at the of, space uh, store engineering and it, it is absolutely delicious yeah basically okay um, cosmic crisp apples if you see them they I'll come recommended uh, I, 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 I mean don't... you might you might grow a third arm or something but <laughs> they're good I've, I've had uh, the, the it... other issue uh, I had I just while, while we're at it 
um, speaking of uh, abominations, uh, he, he gives a brief, like, he gives the categories by which he's evaluating things, and he does mention a race category, and he gives just, like, very pathetic platitude about how, like, modern... My science says that yeah, differences between 15%, people for, uh, yeah, I think you know, that's insert bullshit, arbitrary yeah. number yeah. here, 15%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you encountered that. Too, yeah. That's fine. I it's mean, look, like, I, I, could, I could do, uh, you know, you know find problem, and replace and all that yeah. stuff and I have no problem because I, I understand that they're not going to be completely honest. I mean, just for lack of a better word, because of their position. And I think, again, that goes back to sort of my in, interest in sort of understanding his his veneer. And I think it, it's not so much that you have to have everything laid out like on the table for you, organized into little categories with labels on them to make it super obvious to be valuable. I think it's sort of like playing a poker game. You don't expect the other guy to be completely honest, but you can still learn. And you can also hone your craft, get better. Um, my expectations, I guess, are just not like, I don't expect honesty from somebody who's in a position to lose a lot. I expect them to try to yeah, position their no, incentives I, and motives. But yeah, and it doesn't bother me. It, it really doesn't. I mean, if, if they're, I, again, it's like if it's complete misdirection and lying, to an end that I disagree with, that I don't support it. But I don't think his end is to like upend the Western world and destroy everything. I think his end or his goal is really just to try to come up with something that works. And whether we disagree or not, I think his goal is not really in dispute here. I I don't dispute his goals, but perhaps you do. I, I have no, well, I similarly, I don't have any expectations, but I also have no illusions I want you to tell me what his goal is, because as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> a man like that's goal is to make money. Uh, he's mean, not going to make it. On I guess he's book, getting older. So maybe I, I think it's more are... legacy. Is, no, no, no. Is, I, is like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think he wants yeah, to yeah. sort of come across. We can take him at his word yeah, to yeah. a certain extent. I, I think he, he wants his children this, like, and his, his name and his, and his company to go on know? and continue yeah. to do well. I think that's his main goal. I think his country is important to him, but his sort of uh, interest in China, I think, is not atypical in the financial world because people like uh, Jim Rogers, uh, Hans probably knows that name, but he's kind of a big commodities trader. He used to work actually at the Quantum Fund. I know Jim Rogers. You know, oh, that's cool. Yeah, so he's an interesting kind of cantankerous old guy that um, I don't actually completely... Uh, take 100% stock in because he he just sort of repeats himself all the time. It's sort of like, you know, the Fed is printing too much money. We're going to have a a big uh, recession because, you know, the government is out of control. That's his basic take. But his sort of frustration was, and, you know, I give him credit, Jim Rogers in particular, I give him credit for putting his money and his his actions where his mouth is. He actually moved his family to Singapore because he got so fed up with the direction yeah, of the United States yeah, yeah. that he, he, he basically got his daughter. Um, he got married like uh, second marriage, at least his, his second marriage was like really late in life. And he had a daughter at like 60 years old. <laughs> but in any case, he's, he's another, you know, five foot nothing guy. And so he had, had to make a lot of money to, get get his legacy going i guess but he wrote a book actually about like uh his sort of principles for his 
his daughter. I think that was literally like the title. And I think that's similar to like what Dali was trying to do. He's just trying to encapsulate his sort of lessons of life and give them to his, the next generation, in particular his children. Um, and if you ask me what his motivation is, I think that's it. I mean, I think he's just trying to give a lesson in what works to whoever wants to pay attention. And hopefully, I think he, I think he does care about America. But his interest in China is, I think, admirable in the sense that, you know, it's not so much to say that, like, he roots for China, but I, to say that he wants to understand what drove their success, I think is a good trait. And frankly, it's what the Chinese did with America, you know, that Americans, I think, should try to learn from, you know, the other direction, too. I mean, how many American students study abroad uh, in total, uh, let alone in, in China, you know? And if you look at the number of students from China that have studied in the United States, um, it's it's in the millions. And probably the number of Americans who have studied abroad is less than that. And yes, smaller country. But as a percentage, I would argue it's probably not even... Um, not even a quarter of of what the, the Chinese have done. And and their goal is really to, been to to learn the factors of success. I know the actual Chinese Communist Party studies this this type of work and, and he probably had some high level um discussions with these people because he he has admitted that in his book and in his interviews that he knows people in high levels in China. And I, I do know for a fact that the Chinese Communist Party looks at books like this. Maybe not his, but uh, there was another book that came out maybe five years ago and they, they all like read it. And it was basically about like what causes empires to rise. And a lot of the takeaways were based on like studying the British. Um, and in some of my other studies on China, um, I wrote down some of those factors and a lot of it was, a lot of it was about technology, frankly. And I think the emphasis in China on education, I think is, um, is to their credit and that they're, they've learned how to uh, compete on a technological basis, whereas some other countries have not, and they've, they've fallen behind. But um, that, you asked about his motivations. And now I'm, I'm yeah, sort of, go ahead. Go ahead. So, so let's do it like, let's do it like this. So imagine I have like that silver, almost white hair, despite only being in my late 40s and I have those square translucent frame glasses <laughs> and a suit that is way too tight fitting. Yeah. So we're now on CNBC and you are here uh, as Ray Dalio's book man. And you're He's going publicist. to tell us then since we, I don't even think you've mentioned the title. The title of the book. No, I did. Is publicist. The, the title of the book is the principles for okay principles, principles for a changing world. Order. So what? Yeah are these principles yeah I, you give the give this give the bit yeah there, there's a, there's a list and you know the categorization of it is somewhat uh subjective but i think we'll all agree that there's at least some relevance to the items in this list the the debate i think comes down to how do you how do you weight them because basically his his bottom line score, just like you're, you're evaluating a company, um, Dalio does it for countries. Uh, your bottom line score for a company would be like, well, how profitable are they? Like, what is my earnings per share? Uh, and then you rank that, you know, on a sort of stack rank. And then I'm going to invest in the ones that give me the best return 
on my investment. And he does the same thing for empires. The weighting at which it's done is not super clear, but it's basically uh, between zero and one. What are the, you know, the, the closest to one being the strongest? And that's the U.S. The second one is China. And then I'll we'll, we'll hopefully go through the rest of them. But the factors that determine that score are as follows. The first grouping is called the three big cycles. Uh, and within that, those are uh, the money, capital markets, economic cycle, uh, second one is the cycle of internal order and disorder. The third being the big cycle of external order and disorder. All right. Uh, next category is, uh, eight key measures of power. Uh, first one being education. Second one being innovation technology. Third cost competitiveness. Fourth military strength. Uh, fifth trade. Sixth economic output. Seventh markets and financial center. Uh, eighth uh, reserve currency status. Uh, and then he has sort of a remainder category, additional determinants, uh, geology, resource allocation, and efficiency, acts of nature, infrastructure and investment, character, civility, determination, governance, rule of law, gaps in wealth, opportunity, and values. I think that's a reasonable list. Um, I'm sure you could add to it. I'm sure you could say some of those don't matter as much, but I think it's a good starting point. Um, and I think that's, that's how you basically do this type of analysis. And what economists and some political scientists are trained in is doing a statistical regression. And, and basically you take data sets that have numbers for each of these categories, and then you have a, uh, a dependent variable that is driven by all these things that you can sort of look at like GDP, for example, or military strength, whatever you want to sort of see is the sort of causal you have causal factors, then you have outputs. So you have inputs and outputs. And the, what the things I just read are the inputs. And then the output would be, in Dalio's case, the empire score. And how he actually arrived at that, I'm not really sure. He probably just sort of made his own algorithm and then looked at what the independent input variables were and then saw you know, what actually came out as like the strongest influence. And he probably had more than this list. And then he dropped the ones that actually didn't statistically influence the, uh, the final score. But um, that's what you do in econometrics. That's what some political scientists do. And that's kind of what this book is. It's just a very sort of airporty version of it. Um, but th those are the factors. And so I don't know if you want to drill down to any of those, but those so made some perhaps, sense to me. Uh, perhaps I missed it. Uh, did he mention demographics or population size or anything like that? No, in I, it's an oversight. I, I agree with that. Um, no, not really. He he kind of used these as givens or static. Um, I think he might mention it in the text, but he doesn't break it down as quantitatively. Yeah. I don't I don't remember it coming up much in the uh, in the book. I mean, the parts I read, I don't remember. He might have mentioned it with Japan. I, I don't remember it, honestly, though. The, uh, the, here, that list, when I was reading the book, and as you kind of you summarized the, his list there, you know, this really is how um, really is how a hedge fund guy would approach running a country, right? <laughs> and right. and here, here's and here's here's basically why. Uh, what are hedge fund guys really attempting to do on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, hedge fund guys are looking for primarily arbitrage opportunities. They're looking for incremental gains in, uh, in investment profitability. Um, they s do have some macro scale 
um, let's say, portfolio-wide concerns. They do take into account large institutional investment analysis. But generally, hedge funds are concerned with their own operational level uh, capabilities on a day-to-day basis. Um, That is just how hedge funds are. Uh, And I think that that has been Dalio's mind for so long that he's probably not capable of seeing outside of that. I'm sure that he would be great if you put him or a guy like him in charge of a specific arm of the Treasury Department. Uh, But he would be absolutely – or not absolutely, but he probably wouldn't do well based on his sort of overall framework uh, if you put him in the role of a president or if you put him in the role of uh, a prime economic advisor or if you put him in the role of a powerful senator – or some kind of government role, or even a major corporate role. If you if you put Dalio in charge of a major manufacturing company, for example, that mindset, that hedge fund mindset, it would drive profitability, maybe, but he would ultimately rot away at the underlying core of the industrial capabilities of the company. Look no further than lots of these guys, lots of these types of guys, not always bad trying to make money for the investors and trying to salvage these companies when they started getting enmeshed in American industrial companies starting in the 80s. They ran them into the ground. I mean, it's just it's just a fact. And I think that, that there's, there's, a, there's a fundamental problem with how a lot of hedge fund guys view large-scale macroeconomic issues. Um, they're not great at it. They're really not great at it. Whereas someone, you know, like a, a, a commercial banker would have a much better view of the macro economy, which is why guys from commercial, the commercial banking sector almost always wind up as treasury secretaries. Uh, they simply just have a better holistic... Uh, I, I think they're often investment bankers, though. I mean, if you look at Paulson... Okay, com- commercial at- and investment... Yeah. Commercial investment banking. I'm those are I'm regarding Ru- those as Ruben, you know, all gold. Yeah, but I'm regarding those as, as interchangeable. They're from the large institutional sort of. commercial banking sector where there are there are I bankers that work there. But my my point ultimately is that guys who work at large commercial banks are much more are much better suited for something like Treasury Secretary. They have to consider all kinds of multivariate analysis. They have to consider uh, how you, for example, formulate strategies and anti-strategies and how you formulate strategies against your competitors and how you can create feedback loops to benefit your own profitability. This is what banks have to do. This is why bankers are actually often in these high-level roles. They're forced to think that way. Hedge fund guys, like you know, sort of Dalio demonstrates here uh, in his book, not exactly um, would not would not be great at a large-scale. Uh, vision. I would not take these principles and apply them, and uh, without and missing demographics as a primary principle is also pretty weird. No empire, ma- no country I think matters. It's, it's one of his biggest oversights. I, I agree it's with that. Mass, it's a massive well, oversight. What I don't no, quite no understand though is why you think hedge fund analysis. Is I mean, if you were going to have only one piece of information, you would want demographics. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, what is, no, because the, then you what, would then you would put all your money on Nigeria. I, I don't think that's the only. thing. No, it's not. Do. It's not just about. It's not just about the number. It's about. It's it. It has nothing to do. Okay, you don't even have to think about race. Like, what are the demographics of my country? How many old people are there? How many young people are there? How many people are in each region? What are their skill sets? What what religion are they? I mean, every empire since in a documented sense we know about since the Assyrians have worried about demographic issues. In fact, their number one concern with their day-to-day management of their country and then their empire were demographic related. And the demographics impacted everything else from their point of view. And most empires function this way. So I I think it's not only a huge oversight, it kind of just demonstrates like hedge fund guys don't, don't think that way. And it's not a slight against them. Hedge fund guys think in terms of operational incremental gains in profitability. Okay, I, I think I get your argument. You're basically saying they're he, sort of more short-term thinkers, and they yes, look at they're these not. Metrics. They're not just. Yeah, they're okay. they're great at they're short-term thinkers, not in a bad way. They're short-term thinkers because that's how hedge funds operate. They're, I mean, hedge fund guys yeah. are very, they're very, more active they're managers. Very astute. Yeah. They're, they're they're very astute and they're very quantitative. They're good at in the moment complex systems analysis, and they're good at in the moment um, sort of. Sometimes it's it's a matter of both quantitative analysis, and they use sort of a mix of qualitative past failures to influence what they're going to do well, at that time. Okay, but, but there's different these, types of hedge funds. The there, there really are. are like, there's trend followers. Yes, there's stat arbitrage, and in Dalio's case, he's a macro investor. Like he looks at and actually. Uh, the way he wrote his book, I think, hints at what his fund was doing and, and is doing. And he sort of mentions it uh, somewhat explicitly in the book is that, you know, I, I can't keep track of all this crap in my head. I basically sort of think of this stuff intuitively. Yeah. And then I have the computer yes. yeah, yeah. model it. And then that sort of spits out, you know, a number that is either, you know, above or below my target. And then if, if it compares better yeah. to the other option, then I pick the one that's got the better number on it. That's sort of how his fund works. It's sort of somewhat of a macro algorithmic trading system. Yes. And, uh, you know, I I take on your point, though, that it's sort of a very, like, uh, tactical view of things as opposed to maybe we're going to build the thing that actually ends up being, like, the, the final output. Yeah. Hedge fund and hedge fund managers, I would, I would agree, are less of the builders. And so, and that's, and there's not, that's not a slight against them. That's not a slight at all. Like, I agree. Like, you know, I, I think they're valuable. A lot of these, a lot, they're they're I, like auditors, you know? It's like you have yes, to actually measure yes, the success yeah, yeah. of these plans, which don't always work. And if they don't, they need to be measured, basically. That's what the, the function the, of this the, in the, is. One of the, prime, one of the prime functions that hedge funds, I mean, hedge funds play an important role in, let's, I mean, you call it the Wall Street economy, let's say. Like, they are the market makers to some extent. Like, that, that is, that is, what they end up doing. These guys do drive huge amount of the volume. They drive the activity and they do force particularly uh, institutional investors, banks uh, to think creatively rather than get stuck in some sort of, you know, um, sort of antiquated worldview or they get stuck on a bad investment. Uh, guys like Dalio do have the capability to force change in the market. They do have the ability to sort of direct investment in the long term outside of their own purview into certain industries which then benefit them. So he's clearly, uh, you know, hedge fund 
guys like him are smart. If I had to put Dalio in charge of something, I would put him in charge of something big. But my ultimate point is I, I you know, you can't you can't give guys like that huge strategic capability because that is not what they operate on. And to evidence that, just so I can reiterate my point, him skipping demographics is like a massive oversight. And it definitely, you know, I don't think it was even an oversight. I don't think it, like, to a hedge fund guy, why does that matter? I think it's intentional, uh, and maybe that's inexcusable. Yes. But you could sort of, um, you could make it a a component of one of his factors uh, directly with something like maybe economic output or, I'm just looking at his list. I mean, you'd have to shove it in somewhere, but I think... When it comes to China, especially where they don't have a, a broad-based immigration policy, he, he's really screwing up because he he sort of assumes that the the track record of their growth is somehow going to sort of continue on, and it, it just won't. I mean, they've built out. So for, take for example, um, infrastructure uh, and investment. That's one of his categories. China is uh, almost three standard deviations above his the rest of his. Uh, groupings of countries and you know in analyzing markets i mean you know the housing crisis in 2008 was like sort of like a what was that like a a seven standard deviation thing or something it it was or might have been less though what i'm getting at is that's a large that's a large outlier to what's going on and all that means is they basically they've dumped a huge amount of their uh, their capital, their their human capital, their sort of uh, resource capital into building roads, bridges, airports, some of which may or may not be useful. Uh, and then to contrast that with the United States, um, the only other outlier that I can see from this list that really stands out is markets of finance, which is his sector. <laughs> and uh, it's like, um, I don't know, I, I would actually probably rather have more airports and roads that work than you know, more hedge funds. But um, anytime you see something that extreme, it usually means to me that it's not sustainable. And yeah, I mean, in, in, in the case of China and the United States, I mean, China is a great example of the extremes in infrastructure investing, where it's clearly on some level like a scam that that's being run by construction companies there. And municipal government yeah. workers and, and 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 there's there's definitely an element where there's a lot of these small scale banks in China that are participating in these infrastructure scams like they're they are it harkens back to the Japanese experience where they were you know building the bridges to nowhere except on a much wider scale where there's whole cities that yeah there's whole cities that don't matter in, in China that are fake and you know clearly this is a sign of of artificial wealth of, of, and just scamming, which is a part of Chinese cultures is, is just to be a, a shyster. It's, it's not and, just, it's not just the construction companies though. I mean, it is also the, the mayors and the, yeah. the regional oh, yeah. party members that are, are compensated by it. Beijing. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, I, and this, this is yeah. why, and, and this is maybe a, also, you know, on the other extreme, you have the United States, which United States has succeeded in some part due to a, a good financial system, but has also gone to the other extreme with deep levels of financialization that don't drive value. 
You can't yeah. really say anymore that a lot of the financialization in the United States is driving value. If you could get Dalio in a room, I'm sure he would agree with that. He'd say, oh, you know, most of this is bullshit. Yeah. And Probably. and and a lot of it, a lot of it is is purely uh, is purely profit extraction uh, at the expense uh, of long term investment capabilities. Right. Uh, and there's numerous examples of this, but. His points that, okay, you know, you need good financial markets, you need good infrastructure, so on and so forth. A lot of this, too, is like common sense stuff. And it's good that he finds a way, okay, I'm going to holistically uh, put this together. Uh, but, it, you know, if you if you pass some basic high school courses – you could have figured that out too. Like it's it's not that complicated to know. Here's the list of things you need to have a functioning society. That it's that those are the you know on some level that's kind of why the book is like an elevated airport tier book because it is it does fall into that trap of telling you things you mostly already know with other with other elements sprinkled in that you didn't know that are actually kind of informative. Okay, but but. To sort of, I agree to a certain extent, but I also think that a lot of his readers probably aren't as obsessed with this type of stuff as we are. It's also true. And I would say they probably learned something from it. I certainly learned something from it. I didn't know about the Dutch, you know, for example, and all that. And and what I would also uh, put forward and and maybe offer to uh, everyone listening and, and to you guys as well to ask is wouldn't it be nice i mean cuz i don't maybe people like in the treasury department maybe look or the, the sort of uh what what commerce department i guess that would be the most sort of direct uh place for this type of analysis or economic bureau of economic analysis there's so many frigging techn- technocratic groups in washington they're all sort of arguing for attention there's already enough of that in washington but what i would say is what if some of our political leaders read this book and actually looked at this list. It's like a page long. I don't think most of them know any of this. And I think that's sort of to the blame of our electorate that they don't, they don't want leaders that know this stuff. But I, I ask you, do you think that the fact that the Chinese communist party does research this gives them an advantage or a disadvantage? And I would argue they have a big advantage that they actually know the basics. Our leaders don't even know the friggin' basics. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd like to add, so that's the thing about the, the whole, when you have someone who's able to articulate pretty basic, somewhat obvious truths about the world that we're currently living under, and that is that is in itself some kind of achievement, speaks volumes, because so much of the professional class the political class they're just aggressively wrong about everything yeah (laughs) that it is it is interesting and you know we are reaching a point of you know the later stage of american hegemony where now you have a power like china that they can be right about a lot more things and if these are now in these powers are now in competition one that staffs its political apparatus with people who know what's going on and are right about things versus the one that is just 
can be counted on to always be wrong about everything. It is it is interesting, and it takes like some merchant to you know put out an airport book, you know, making these simple points. Yeah. So to to one of your points, Adam, um, do our leaders know this this stuff? Uh, in turn, depends what you what you're going to deem leaders. Uh, do the average congressman know these things? Maybe some of them. They're concerned at a very fundamentally like you know limited level. The average congressman. Uh, believe it or not, the average congressman is still actually somewhat concerned with what's going on in their district, mostly at, for selfish reasons. But they're focused on micro-level things. Um, occasionally are kind of given the instructions by their party leadership or by congressional leadership or donors on the big ticket stuff, the big issues stuff. They're just told what way they vote. Uh, do you know the do the political leaders of the country grasp this? Ultimately, I would say it doesn't matter because of what you said. The United States has an abundance of technocratic institutions. So do the Chinese at a much deeper scale that yeah. probably actually makes things more difficult for them. They are too overly invested in 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 technocracy, too invested in bureaucracy. Uh, the COVID response was very indicative of that. You know, hmm. It was very hard to it was very hard to unwind that machine from a bureaucratic standpoint once they got going. But uh, you, you know, the United States does have pretty tremendous technocratic capabilities. Um, you might think people might get this impression that the Commerce Department, and the Treasury Department, are and the White House economic advisors and all these people. Are, are dumb, they're very much not dumb. There, a lot of them are actually, you know, the people that actually that are lifers that work there, that perform these analyses day in, day out, uh, they're fairly intelligent. Uh, and there are those among them that are actually extremely intelligent. And they have a good understanding of how the American economy works uh, and how to manage it on a day-to-day -day basis. They're the ones that actually matter. And so if you ask, do our leaders know this stuff, if you would count them as leaders, then yes. The, polit the front political leaders get their information from those types anyways. So it, it doesn't – I don't think it ultimately matters. I don't think that uh, senior-level people who – senior-level lifers at the Commerce Department who each have some specialty in some specific sector or specific field that they're analyzing – they don't need to read Ray Dalio's book. Like they're already well informed enough, and they, you know, they're they're capable enough on their own. That's just that was that's my impression. Uh, would the average person benefit from reading this? I guess so. Yeah, there is an element of the of the average American now where they are ignorant of these basic things. Like they don't have a way of holistically looking at what are um, the the fifteen things you need to understand how a country functions. Like the average person isn't taught, uh, I think, that well, or at least it's not, it's not made clear to them in, in an in a informative way how to look at the cohesive realm of the country. Uh, now, one of the chief problems that uh, you'll find 
with not addressing the demographic issue going back to that. Uh, and again, when I'm saying demographics and not even, you know, don't even have to think about race or anything. Let's just start with the basics. If you forego demographic analysis, uh, it's very hard, for example, to ultimately make decisions that would impact the profitability as Ray Dalio is very concerned with, the return on investment as he's very concerned with, and some of the other underlying fundamentals. If you don't understand the labor force that you're working with, the, the employees you have, I mean, it's very cynical, but let's assume, you know, from his point of view, America's a big corporation. How do I manage it like one? Well, if you don't have a lot of great information on your employees, I don't really, you know, you're really not going to make informed decisions. Uh, that alone just kind of strikes me as not a great, not a great analysis on his part. To just kind of forego that. Uh, you can't, for example, make a long-term decision on uh, return on investment if you have one fifth of your population uh, alternating on different kinds of drug addiction. That's a big deal. That's a big problem. That's a demographic issue, ultimately, at its core. It's a qualitative issue at its core. Uh, you have to keep that in mind. You have to keep in mind if, for example, you have a, a city like Chicago where increasingly you have a, a, a separation between three different racial groups of people who uh, two of whom are increasingly uh, at in a violent conflict with another with one another that is driving public expenditures through the roof in terms of security in terms of cleanup in terms of investigations in terms of housing subsidies I mean everything gets driven up to this uh, if you're not going to look at the dem that kind of demographic problem you're going to really miss the boat on return on investment because it turns out you're investing a ton into this, you know, into this area, what are you going to get out of it? Because what you're investing are not profit drivers. They're simply ways of stemming more losses. That's ultimately what policing is for the American society. It's like a way of stemming loss. It's what like housing subsidies are and drug rehab facilities. Like these are not profit driving investments. So if you're not going to look at the demographics of the country, of your empire, you're going to really miss the boat on the things you're spending money on huge problem and that's just like two examples of why you, you can't you can't miss that uh and like i was saying every empire worries about demographics uh, this Assyrian empire for example is deeply concerned uh, not just with the ethnic makeup of their rapidly expanding country um but for example what they were feeding them there were, there were widespread concerns in the Assyrian Empire at one point that their population was becoming deeply malnourished. And that was because uh, as they expanded, they had to basically feed everyone sort of like millet gruel, like, you know, it's like a deeply sort of grain and cereal dependent empire um, in its later stages. And everybody developed all, all manners of, of poor health outcomes and uh, fertility became a problem. Uh, everybody had bad teeth. You know, people could fight very effectively. You know, I had suddenly had a widespread societal issue. And then 
there's another element that Dalio didn't bring up or didn't. I mean, did he? Did he bring up culture? There was something about character or something yes, like he, that. Yes, he, he brought up okay. kind of the importance of work ethic and obviously okay. education. Um, those but are things that are hard to measure in his defense. And I think it is to his credit that at least he mentions them. To really give a hard analysis on that, you really do have to go hard into the sociology it, Yes. Statistics and regression and I, tables. And get, and it's a little complicated. So go ahead. I get, I get he's trying to eat. Okay. So a, he's trying to avoid being controversial. That's probably certainly one motivating factor. Certainly. If, and it's possible that, that I am over, that I'm overanalyzing all this and all of it is that Ray Dalio doesn't want to be called racist. Like it's totally <laughs> possible. Like that, you know, I mean, that, that, he's that only that responsible for $50 billion. You know, it's like, he no, kind of doesn't want to many such that. cases. Yeah. <laughs> but he, it's a hundred. But Adam, I have a question. Uh, whatever it is. I don't How I don't many, know, yeah. how much money do you need before you're allowed to be racist? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, controls $150 billion and he can't like, he can't talk about black people. I think they're it's, inversely it's correlated, Nick. <laughs> I think the more money you have, the less able you are. Oh, to that be. explains a lot about my life. <laughs> well, correlation is not causation. So, but I think it is a correlation nonetheless. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, is that your goal, you know, to be racist or is the goal to, to, you know, affect policy. Right. And, if your goal is racist policy, I guess, yeah, it doesn't really work in America. <laughs> <laughs> if the goal is racism, yeah, well, what's works, the difference? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like, there's other yeah. things, but. <laughs> um, well, okay, so I think we've done a good job of critiquing sort of what the guy misses. Uh, do you guys want to discuss what he does get right, or at least covers somewhat? Uh, objectively well, and then here's here's a couple things i, w- I want to get a bit more into the china stuff but sure yeah, go ahead Tom. well he well, has a the, huge can... section uh in like the sort of second half of the book on that um and yeah. I, I i do too but i also wanted to kind of also discuss the more um high level stuff about you know yes. broad patterns and things like that but hans were you going to say something so, yeah, I mean, we can get to the other gists, the other gestalts of the book. Uh, number one, he he has this term, the big cycle. Okay. And uh, the big cycle is, is uh, you know, every 250 years, um, there things go, go haywire for some reason. Uh and that, you know, he's like, oh, the average empire lasts 300 years or something like that. And, you know, first of all, this analysis has been done to death. Uh, I don't want to accuse him of plagiarism. But the the glib theory has been around for a long time that, you know, the, measuring the average length of an empire and that's this has been around for decades, and and he at least analyzed a lot more empires than Dalio did to come to the conclusion that three hundred years, is, you know, 
Yes, sorry, club uh, has been you know 250 to 300 years right. is the general like rule of thumb. It's a it's a heuristic. Yeah, Dahlia like, doesn't even I, have a freaking uh, references section. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's, um, like, that's did he rip hmm. that off? Because you know that 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 kind of felt like uh, where have I seen this before? Oh yeah, uh, everywhere else. Not that wasn't exactly a unique insight. Uh, so that just want to get that out of the way. He tries to pursue the cyclical theory of history, but most mainstream, um, a, a lot of like the popular versions of cyclical theory are very uh, boring, and they don't even explain realistically what the ultimate drivers of the cycles are. From Dalio's point of view, he tries to square it with, oh, it's all about interest rates and it's about capital <laughs> allocation. And it's like, uh, okay, yeah. but you know, he's like, well, it has to do with like with debt. I mean, we're on like hundred-year debt cycles and or something, and I'm like, and he, but he doesn't he doesn't really provide a large-scale like uh, analysis to back that up. I would have been interested if someone could, you know, go go back several hundred years, if not. A thousand years, but and there are financial. There's there are pieces of financial analysis going back over a thousand years. You can people find people writing papers about this, and if he could provide arguments like, hey, you know, I there is a general traje- trajectory of debt-based cycles going back to trace back to medieval Europe or medieval China at the very least, and we can see traces of this in in, in Mesopotamian civilization and the Roman Empire and in Greece and. These places did have debt problems. They were fueled by debt. They had banking crises. They weren't exactly that different from us today. Yeah. So he could have at least. Tried he wrote to a be... book actually on that subject, which I haven't read, but he might actually have gone more in detail on oh, the really? things you're okay. looking for. Uh, yeah, it's like I don't. So then, this called, is a way to get you debt. to buy his other book. Uh, maybe. I mean, look, I don't yeah. think he's making a lot of money so, on his well, book sales also, versus on the subject of theories of history. He makes clear in the first part of the book that he's a wigger. Oh, that we're all getting better and progressivism will win. Yeah. Yes. And, and yeah, he's a wigger. He yeah. says he says uh, he gives his like brief teleology is is uh, as evolution and not necessarily in like a Darwinian yes. sense. But, yeah. Like, a yeah. Cosmic uh, theory of history is as evolution. Well, that everything he's, he's is a wigger. Yeah. But that everything is generally improving, uh, which is just flat out wrong i mean you know you do have periods of history where things get horrifyingly bad and that's just obvious i I, you know again like either major oversight or he's just doesn't want to stop talking about something i don't know but uh strange but you know if he could have provided like a better analysis of the hundred year debt cycle i would have been intrigued but it it really just falls flat. It's not really that complicated or even worth remembering. So it, it's ultimately just saying like, oh, well, here's this 100-year debt cycle. Let me base my analyses from there. Mm-hmm. He sort of gives you a heuristic that he just whisks out of the air and then goes and then runs with it. You can't really do that. Uh, and it's also just not that interesting to create your own vision of the world and then sort of spin it to me. I'm not as interested in in, in seeing that, uh, and I will say, this feels like it was probably somewhat cribbed 
from the Neil Howe uh, and Strauss book, uh, The Fourth yeah. Turning, which we did a show on. We did. Uh, four years ago, four and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of elements of this that feel like it was cribbed from that boomer tier cyclical you know theory of history but at least in the fourth turning they provided a you know substantial somewhat substantial argument whenever they would explain their cycles uh some of it's you know just like utter insanity like giving a particular character to each generation or whatever but at least there's (laughs) at least there's an argument at least, you know, they try and back it up with historical examples. At least they formulate like a real hypothesis. Uh, one of the chief problems is that, you know, Dalio, as you said, doesn't have a reference section. A lot of this just feels very um, pulled out of thin air. Um, and I, I, that makes it less interesting. I feel like he's a smart enough guy. He could have come up with a theory that was based on something. But he just doesn't he doesn't want to or he doesn't feel the need to or there's something that he knows that he won't share that's ultimately a little strange. so the, the title of his book is called the principles for navigating big debt crises uh i have not read that but the section that you're talking about um it is a little short um you know, it's 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 funny hearing your guys' feedback on all this stuff I, you know if something doesn't make sense to me i just sort of write it off, but I don't, I don't use it to like indict the rest of the stuff that I might agree with. I'm just looking for stuff that I can sort of use. And, right. you know, in this I'm case, not indicting the rest of the stuff, I'm just saying like he, yeah. he is, he doesn't leave out some critical details that I would have been interested to hear. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, maybe you're right. He's like, he's like shamefully like putting his stupid book. Like <laughs> re- that's his one reference. <laughs> like read my other book. Read my book. <laughs> that's his reference. Read my book. My, read my other book to understand this book. Like, Oh Jesus. It's like a, a cir- circular <laughs> reference error in Excel, but, uh, yeah. um, <laughs> show dependence. Yeah. But, um, the, uh, the cycle, I mean, look again, high level lack of detail, whatever. It, it doesn't make the, no the, sense uh, to me. Cyclical Dalio cycle. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's basically like this like little pyramid thing where it's actually, I guess, it's supposed to be a circle, but there's three parts of it. So type one, you have hard money, metal coins. That evolves into type two claims on hard money, banknotes, and then that evolves into fiat money, uh, such as the U.S. dollar. And I think his implication is that, well, when that goes broke, it, it reverts back to hard money. And in this next chapter, chapter four, uh, he does show, and I've seen charts like this elsewhere. So I, I think this is a, a very well, non-controversial, well-accepted analysis. If you do look at fiat currencies uh, or reserve currencies in particular over time, talking about the Dutch, the pound, you know, Great Britain, and then the USA, they all lose value versus gold. And why is that? It's because they've they've gotten into the habit of printing money uh, without actually having the assets to back it up because there is a period where, and he sort of gets into this later in the book where if you have a dominant status, people do trust you more than other countries. And see, they, they let you get away with more profligate uh, spending 
than other countries uh, do. Like the IMF is not, I mean, shit, if the IMF like had any authority in the United States, I mean, we'd be shut down, you know, four decades ago uh, with the deficit spending that we've been incurring for decades. Um, but the, <laughs> we have a reserve currency and so we can continue to print. And if you look at what that does to the value of $1 in 1900 versus $1 in 2000, I mean, it's like a 95, 97% decrease. Um, you know, it's like three cents on the dollar. Cause if you go back in time, I mean, it, it costs like a penny to, uh, get a loaf of bread, you know, now it's like, you know, $4 or what, I don't know. I don't buy much bread, but whatever it is. I mean, it's certainly above a dollar. Um, so it has gone down in value because of this sort of, I think, you know, frankly, the debt cycle sort of is a good way of summing it up because a lot of what governments do is that they, they promise to pay, uh, money in the future for money now, which is what debt is. And they write basically notes to people, uh, to get their money. Uh, and before the fed stepped in, that used to be, you know, from their, from its citizens. And now it's just the fed basically bankrolling the whole federal government's deficits. But, um, I, I think it's a fair, fair case to make that a debt cycle is attributable or it, it's a cause of why our currencies lose value. Um, I think that's a valid pattern. It's an obs- valid observation. And it's why sort of, you know, Bitcoin is interesting to me and other people, uh, and, and gold as well. But, uh, in any case, um, there's a lot more to this book. And I think one of the sections I liked was the analysis of revolutions. I'm interested to hear what you guys think about that. He has a list. Let me try to find it, but I, I wrote down the ones that like I recognized, but he has a very, like a two page list of, uh, revolutions slash like uh, revolts that, uh, resulted either in effective changes, like real fundamental changes at the, the government level, uh, you know, regime change, whatever you want to call it versus ones that did not. Uh, and just to give like an example, the American revolution in 1776 resulted in an obvious change in the regime. However, the U.S. Civil War, a uh, hundred or so years later, um, did not because the existing regime was triumphant against the revolt. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of others that he, he mentions. Um, English Civil War, French Revolution, Meiji Restoration, Russian Revolution, uh, the German revolutions, uh, you know, Hitler, et cetera, uh, Japan, uh, in the 1930s, Chinese civil war were ones that actually did result in changes. And I only recognize two that I have ever heard of, of the ones that didn't result, but you can understand that if it didn't result in anything, you probably didn't get taught it because it didn't matter, but it actually does matter because if you want to understand like why were some successful versus why were some not, you have to look at both. And so he mentions the Taiping rebellion where 20 million or so people died in China. Apparently I didn't know that, but um, then nothing happened regime wise. And then again, the U S civil war were the two that I recognized. And there were a few more that I didn't recognize, but did you guys have any thoughts on like what actually results uh, in real change versus what doesn't? What were the ones that you didn't recognize? I have to find the passage. Um, I wasn't sure if you guys would know it, but here are the ones that I have the page now. So 
Jacobite Risings in Great Britain, 1745. Pugachev's Rebellion in Russia, 1773. Dutch Patriot Revolt in 1781. Pugachev is funny. Pugachev was like brought before the czar in a uh, basically like a monkey cage. <laughs> they still do that. <laughs> like like yeah, out of like the zoo. Yeah. Well, the Jack actually you're right. The whole tradition. Kind of they did that to uh, Kordakovsky. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Jacobite revolution is pretty pretty quintessential moment in if you're yeah I think I had heard of that I just I'm not an expert but maybe you can go into that more like what happened and why didn't it actually result in a change. <clears throat> in your opinion. Well, what's the rest of the list? I'm curious. Well, okay. Uh, so there's White Lotus Rebellion in China, 1794. German Revolutions of 1848. Uh, Taiping Rebellion, I mentioned, 1851. Ponthe Rebellion in China, 1856. U.S. Civil War, 1861. Muslim Rebellion in China, 1862. Paris Commune. 1871 boxer rebellion uh, i had i had heard of that one 1899 there's a lot of these why why is he so obsessed with china what what is the, the obsession a, with well china? it's a big country there's a lot of people there probabilistically you might expect to be uh, more revolts but he mentions the netherlands russia great britain i'm not sure why you, you you think it's a fixation it's also an old country so it's been around longer than perhaps some of these other ones um, but yeah, it's true. It's I, I, just, goes back I, years. I, by the way, I, I'm a, I'm a big denier of the China is 4,000 years old <laughs> stuff. You're not the only this, one. I, I, yeah. I'm convinced this country was invented in the last couple hundred years. I don't actually think there's a lot of proof to, 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 you know, to this idea that China is an old country, that there's no evidence of that. Okay, but if you look at it on a population basis, I don't think it's disproportionately represented. I mean, this is just history. It's like, you know, like there's three mentions of Great Britain on his on his list, and then uh, of the Chinese, there's one. Yeah, but it's two, a, that's a quantitative. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Of history. Obviously, yeah. Great Britain com- com- compare the British Isles to the <laughs> to the Orient, and it's in terms of size and population numbers. Obviously, it's dwarfed, but in terms of historical significance, <laughs> it's a big difference. I think they're both relevant. But... Yeah, he's obviously. I mean, sure, but my, my point is. Like, On a per capita basis, I'll give numbers, it to Britain, but... for sure. But... Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, so what was the what's the criteria for a revolution being successful or um, what's, well, what is his? What is he saying is the difference between a failed no, and a successful to, revolution? Because I have to examine it very carefully again. But I mean, I think the list wasn't that. Uh, well, so for example, insane. from a from like his perspective, that of from a merchant perspective, <laughs> uh, the American Revolution wasn't especially significant. No, no, I think it's basically what was the was the government in power overthrown or not. I think that's the, the, the basic uh, measurement. It's like, was the government during the revolution able to hold power or not? And if they were able to hold power, the revolution was not well, successful. Well, in the American Revolution, the government wasn't overthrown. The, 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 can- uh, the, the British were. The power structure did not like assume, assume the throne of, of the British Empire. <sighs> okay, but... I, I All right, you could... You could 
split hairs. I I, I think that I, one's un, you know a I'm fairly reasonable one. Like, it's a complicated subject. Of course it is. Uh, of course. And oftentimes. Of course. But do you do you not do the analysis, or do you just make an attempt? I mean, I think that's maybe the sort of disagreement here. Um, it doesn't mean that it, it's going to be apples to apples, but um, I'd rather have some analysis. Apples personally. to mandarins. <laughs> Tangerine, See what I did there? Tangerines to, <laughs> to oranges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. So well, yeah, the China. What's what is what's the deal? Why is he, why is he contrarian on China? Why why is he uh, familiarizing himself with every obscure rice farmer rebellion? What, what's uh, what's his deal? Well, I mean, I guess you agree with Hans that he's like sort of uh, a little bit overrepresentative of China. Um, I mean, I don't know, but I can only speculate. Is that obviously from a finance guy's perspective? The numbers don't really lie about China. It's like, holy crap, like this thing has exploded like no other country. What are you talking about? The history. Chinese lie about like every number associated with their country. They recently, it was determined that they've been lying about the number okay, of people okay, that okay. live there. The numbers, the numbers certainly lie, <laughs> but you know, the, the, the direction, the second, the, the first derivative uh, doesn't really lie in the sense that it's it's greater than zero. I mean, look at and, mm. and plus, like the physics don't lie. If you, if you haven't been to China, I mean, that shit is not fake. Th those skyscrapers, those bridges, came out of nowhere. I mean, that place was uh, was empty before they started all this shit uh, thirty years ago. It's unreal. So I think that is sort of undeniable, and you have to kind of pay attention to it. Uh, it it's not. Not not smoke and mirrors. I mean, sure, there, there's fraud for sure. Well, especially but. when you consider his generation. I mean, he's he's a he's a boomer, right? He's in yeah. the seventies. Yeah. So he, if he was involving himself and paying attention to the East in the eighties or nineties, and he's watched that development happen, it probably had that impact on him personally. Probably. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of boomers do remember a time when China was, you know a backwards dump led by Mao and it was this historic thing when Nixon went there because the impression of China out, out in the rest of the world were, you know, their, their isolationist dog eaters and nobody talks to them. And I, you know, I think that, that there is this effect that boomers have been hypnotized by the Chinese because the Chinese have uh, gone from, you know, actually living in somehow, uh, a giant mass of people living in relative obscurity uh, to, you know, coming onto the world stage in, in, in a major way. Uh, I, I think it clouds their judgment on China, to, to be honest. I, I think that they're hypnotized by it. They don't want to see it for what it really is. Um, and they haven't grown up in the world where China's been a, a ever-present force and aren't as wary of it as I think younger people are. I think younger people are actually honestly more wary of China on some level than a lot of the boomers are in, in my experience. That might boomer, be true. Boomer, boomer like, yeah, particularly boomer finance guys are just in love with it. And, and it, it, a huge chunk of that is due to the fact that they, these guys are very focused on, like Dalio, 
it's all about incremental gains and in, in investment and okay, right. you know, we're going to get some extra money, some extra cash out of this. If we ship the factory over to, right. uh, to rice land. And if we manage to, you know, uh, cut costs because there's three specific chemicals we're not allowed to use in the manufacturing process here, there's some EPA regulations, so we'll get the Chinese to do it, and they'll pay some guy three bucks an hour to do it, and and we'll make a ton of money that way, and we'll be able to you know get all these OEM suppliers in China to get, assemble everything in China, and they're like oh it's all these cost savings. Like these guys do think that way. They and it's their job to think that way. They're there to you know save their company's money, but. For everyone else who's younger, who has to now grow up in a world where you know the industrial base is gone out of the United States, mm -hmm. and a lot of the uh, chemical providers are gone, and you know we now live in uh, you know post-industrial society in large areas. Although now there's these attempts to, to unwind that, for, you know, inexplicably, but uh, I, I think that he is just a little hypnotized. Him and his whole generation are hypnotized by yeah. this, by this country. So it's basically like the the meme where the the guy is, is walking with his girlfriend and he's like looking at the other girl and it's like, <laughs> yeah, like it's, it literally is that meme walking with like yeah. Reaganite Reaganite eighties like and then looking at like ooh China twenty first yeah, century yeah, 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 all yeah, these yeah. cold all these cold yeah. warriors like they fell in love with China yeah. for some reason it's 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 wild I have no idea how that happened well you know it's you funny that he talks about uh, fascism a little bit of course you know with all the caveats but he he compares it actually to the Chinese system which he calls legalism but it's kind of an admission that it's basically a fascist society I mean in my opinion I, at least and I think he's sort of confirming that by oh, looking God. at how he he views well you think that's a wrong well, read, the, or? you know interwar europe and china they both seem to have trains that like don't derail and <laughs> fucking nuke like rural towns oh yeah we're going to talk about oh, the north oh, hold Southern, on right? it happens all the time in china <laughs> it does just, yeah exactly like, they don't talk happens, about it <laughs> yeah so probably does, doesn't it yeah. everybody I remember like, uh, was, in, in Tianjin, there was a huge chemical factory that like literally lit on fire. Yeah, and and like remember, the, of course, like remember, you know, Beijing's not going to put live the cameras leak? on it. Do you remember Live Leak? I mean, there was an entire category on Live Leak for Chinese industrial accidents. It numbered in the tens of yeah. thousands of videos. Yeah, everything from buildings made of styrofoam like collapsing, <laughs> on people and yeah. and chemical fires and and gigantic auto wrecks. Or, oh, Ch China or, or, is or, an industrial or, wasteland. It it is uh, absolutely environmental disaster. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Give me a break. There's probably yeah. a, it, it's twenty million train derailments every. There's six million every day. And it, it's like, okay. <laughs> let's, uh, but I, I, since this came up and I actually anticipated discussing it, um, I looked into the numbers a little bit. Um, and, and I, I believe them. Okay. So if you think that there's like lying going on, that's maybe another question. But assuming that these numbers are correct, according to the Bureau of Transport Statistics, there are thousands of train derailments every year. And if you look at their, uh, their time series of it, uh, going back to maybe the 80s or so, um, let me see if I can pull up the the chart, but, but you know, but roughly what I remember, it's gone down. Yeah, of course, and the severity of that derailment varies, right? But yeah. just yeah. in terms of the number of times 
a train derailed. That's fairly objective, whether it you know fell off the track or didn't. Um, it has gone down from maybe 6,000 a year to maybe like 1,500, 2,000 now. So it's actually gone down. And that, that doesn't surprise me because there's lower was it, indus- was industrial activity. The, uh, there's lower usage of trains for a lot of commodities now. Uh, the, the bulk shipments uh, have, I think, gone down mainly because of coal. Um, but the, uh, intermodal stuff has actually picked up, but, you know, truckloads have actually taken up most of the increase in logistics, I think in the United States. And because of the deindustrialization, one would expect there would be some decrease of railroad activity, but also perhaps increases in safety. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not defending derailments, by the way. I'm just saying when people fixate on one accident, it's really missing a lot of the context because these happen every year. Pete really Buttigieg, do. get off the call. Well, whatever. I mean, people have like, you know. Yeah, don't you have some child to kidnap? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But um, I would not buy Norfolk Southern stock just, you know, as my investment. Yeah, I'm thinking moment. I'm thinking. Uh, we're looking at another PG&E Hinkley situation here. They're going to get yeah. absolutely reamed in court. And uh, they're, yeah. they're screwed. And unlike PG&E, uh, they're not going to get a sweetheart deal from the government because they're a utility provider. Uh, you could actually see like a, a railroad go down. But I was going to say, um, uh, I think it was Westinghouse, like the initial invention that netted him enough money to start his uh, his energy business, uh, or I'm sorry, his his, uh, his electrical engineering businesses. Wasn't it like some device? that prevented trains from derailing so easily in hmm. the 1880s or 1890s. I can't remember what the specific device was. It was this little ingenious huh. invention that he came up with. And for many years, it was like his profit driver huh. was keeping trains from derailing. Yeah, That's cool. There was a, there was a time, uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on it, but there was a time in the United States where train derailments were like a co- super common occurrence. Every trains derail. Well, they used to build rails out of iron. Okay, yeah, and you, you know you how like ductile like that point, stuff like is. I mean, it's, it's a disaster every, waiting to happen. Yeah, at one point you had like a one in ten chance of derailing if you got on a train. Exactly. And yeah. it was, and they were catastrophic. I mean, you know, the whole train falls over, people die. It, you know, people stop. Indians actually, shoot you with arrows. You know, take your stuff. Yeah. Back in yeah, the old I mean, days. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Back before Indians were like gay and retarded and and asking for handouts from uh, <laughs> government. But uh, I met some Indians yeah. recently. They're uh, they're just grumpy. They're they're not. I don't think they're retarded. Yes. Uh, if they're not, you know. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> they're still looking for handouts, though. They're definitely hustling you. Oh well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. White man, give huts up. Have you ever just been driving like late at night on a country road and encountered like an engine just passed out in the road? Not in the night. I've seen them in the day though, just wandering along the freeway or not the freeway, but just like the the sort of mountain highways, you know? Um, Yeah. I have seen that. Yes. You saw one in the road? They do that in Australia, the Aborigines. Yeah, they they fall asleep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, no. They have it happens. It happens to Red Indians too. Okay. Yeah, they have the permanent sad face all the time. They just they look at you and with one just, tear. They, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, just one tear streams down their face and you tell them that you're not going to give them the housing subsidies. It's, it's just so over. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, anyways, what were we talking about? Uh, like rice land and industrial accidents? Well, um, I mean, Nick wanted to talk about uh, why Dahlia talks about China so much. Um, I think we kind of covered why, but uh, I don't think we really covered why he thinks China is poised for success uh, oh, i'd boy. like to go into that i mean i actually hate to yeah. do this but i think is quite quite right about a lot of the problems that china has and i think dalio is looking in the in the mirror um about china going forward yeah i, so. I did want to comment the, they are doing like polar opposites of each other like if yeah. you listen to peter zihan you know, uh, the Qua Reich is is poised to achieve total uh, total victory over the planet, and uh, the solar system will have a McDonald's uh, everywhere by you know the year twenty two hundred. Right. It, it, it's yeah, you know, it's like incredible success awaits us. Every country is going to suck. Democracy Uber Alice. Yes, democracy Uber Alice, and. Uh, and him and his his gay lover will you know preside over a giant consulting empire, whatever. <laughs> Whereas, and China will be a gigantic death zone that's split up into. He, he said states. something so crazy to me. I, I actually am not even sure he was being serious because he said, historically speaking, and he's not wrong historically, by the way, but he's like projecting that forward. This is Zihan. He said that China is potentially looking at 500 million dead from famine and i'm like are they that incompetent i mean yeah i i think i agree with a lot of his sort of critiques of the demographics there but i i just don't see how he comes to that conclusion i think that's unfortunately the world is not nearly that interesting so that many people dying from famine won't happen um although that would be you know that would you know billions as people some might say billions but uh i you know that won't actually happen whereas on the other hand you have dalio who is you know a a a boomer finance guy and he he thinks china's the bee's knees and it's on the the cusp of winning and america's a declining empire and although his arguments for why america's declining are like are, are really lacking in substance like oh america has a debt problem like, yeah. I think he's looking yeah. at, the at the symptoms. I don't think he's looking at the cause. But yeah, although he I does mean, cite it's... like you know the cycle of basically decadence, which I generally agree with. Nobody I mean, a lot wants of the... to have the theory. Nobody has the theory that all of the major powers of the world are actually all on decline at the same time, which is <laughs> kind of interesting. Uh, if someone would actually focus on that. That pretty I, I much. Think, I think he cites correctly power... that India is is going up. Uh, I think that will continue. I think India has a lot of the advantages China had 20, 30 years ago. Sure. I mean, look, if you're coming from a very uh, impoverished place, it's not that hard to build a sewer system and increase your quality and and quality of life and standard of living. And they're basically, it's it's catch-up. Catch-up is easy. So he has that in common with, with Zihan. Yeah. Both, no, they do agree on India. Bullish yeah, on, uh, they do. Indoor plumbing in the subcontinent. <laughs> Directionally okay. speaking, they 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 agree. In terms of ranking, uh, Zion is much 
much more bearish or much more pessimistic on India, uh, not India, China's prospects. Uh, Dalio is much more optimistic on China's prospects of overtaking uh, the United States. Um, and yeah, they, they sort of are the same inverse on the United States. But yeah, India, they, they agree on the directional change. But in terms of like the ranking, Dalio only puts India as like, let me find it. Um, I thought I wrote this down. Yeah, India is ranked six out of 11 in the book. So it starts with the US. Uh, so again, score from zero to one, one being the highest on empire strength. US, 0.87, rank one. China, 0.75, rank two. Europe, European Union, 0.55 rank three Germany, which is part of the EU. So it's a sub, but, uh, Germany is ranked fourth at 0.37 Japan 0.3 rank five India 0.27 behind Japan rank six, but rising, uh, UK, uh, 0.27 rank seven France 0.25 rank eight Netherlands 0.25 rank nine Russia 0.23 rank 10 and Spain, uh, 0.2 rank 11. That's his list. And then he, he breaks down for all the factors. Like, you Wait, know, where Spain? I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, yeah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe he, like, talk about missing demographics. I mean, Jesus Christ, man. I know. Yeah, I, I'm surprised Italy didn't like the demographics Spain. Spain, Spain mean, is... Spain, Spain is not... Although Italy... Italy has some bad demographics too, but um, I think Italy has a bigger economy. So I don't know why he put Spain and skipped Italy. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, who else would you put in? There? I, I maybe Brazil. I mean, I don't know how you skip that. That's kind of funny. Um, I'm trying to think who else would should be on that list. Um, but overall, it's okay. Maybe, maybe Indonesia because they got. 200 million people or something. Um, well, let's see. Are we still talking about China? I have a few more things I can add. Yes, let's continue talking about China. All right. So I watched a very good, highly recommend documentary called uh, American Factory recently. Uh, it was produced or distributed or both by netflix um so yes i know what you're talking about you know who was he was a big part of making that uh uh, king king negro himself obama obama's company bought it the rights to it but i don't think he was involved in making it Um, he he was involved in some of the producing of it and he was definitely involved in the very weird ending where they basically ending was crap but yeah Yeah, he was that was like direct that was definitely him i think i honestly think that they when i watched it i was like this this guy actually like straight up changed the ending or added on an ending to this so okay again though like do we care about the author's conclusions or would we care about the facts presented and that to me the second one is is always the first place i look because, you know, when you have a camera and you have a guy talking, of course, you can, like, cut out people who are talking about other things. But there was enough in there to kind of give me an impression based on my experience to say that that was a fairly accurate portrayal um, of the situation. And maybe you disagree. But just set it up for people who aren't familiar. The 
the movie uh, documentary is actually about uh, a Chinese factory in America, but they call it American factory because it's, it's sort of like the reverse of globalization now that China has become rich. Now they're sort of putting factories in the United States where people are broke and poor and, and desperate, and they're trying to apply the same uh, principles they have in China to American workers. And it just doesn't work very well. But, you know, and I haven't made this parallel yet, but I think a lot of people would recognize this. The same thing happened with Japan in the 80s. Um, and they actually were able to overcome that. And it's very interesting to see because this comp- uh, the company is called Fuyao. Uh, and I didn't know this. I haven't verified this. But uh, I think I saw the number was they, they produce 70% of the world's supply of automotive glass, which is incredible. Um, and when you see the guy who founded the company, it's like, oh, God, this is so much like how China works. Like this guy looks like he... Uh, well, he look, kind of looks like a, I don't want to be cruel here, but um, he looks like a cartoon character. He, he's got this very like blockhead face. He looks like he smokes a lot or used to. And he probably made a lot of very shady deals with the Communist Party to plow under rice fields and kick people out of their homes to build his factories. But nonetheless, very successful dude. They literally call him the chairman and they have paintings of him in the company uh, comparable to how they have paintings of Mao everywhere and Xi Jinping. It's very Chinese. So this company is, is a, a production powerhouse in automotive glass. And after the U.S. financial crisis in 2008, uh, the automakers um, in particular were hard hit. GM and Chrysler both went bankrupt. And GM, as part of their restructuring, closed this factory in Dayton, Ohio. And what Fuyao did was like, hey, there's this the facility. We're going to move in now and reinvest at the bottom and try to expand. And they did. Uh, but it was this horribly, horribly painful um, process that took years. And I think eventually they're, I think they're making money now. But uh, for years, they were just bleeding, bleeding money. Because the fact is, uh, whether it's right or wrong, the Chinese outproduce the American worker on stuff like this for the same amount of time put in. Uh, and they also put in more time and they also don't strike and they're much more robotic as to how they go about things. And so they're, they're just different animals. And when you try to take that sort of culture and apply it to the Americans, it just doesn't work very well. Um, and I, I'm going back to what I said earlier cause I didn't finish it, but this happened and there's a good movie called gung ho where it sort of uh makes a caricature of this sort of like asian work obsession culture um in this case in japan in that movie gung ho in the 80s going to american unionized uh, auto working facilities and I, i've worked in these facilities um in my past and i could say the portrayal is accurate um in these movies, in this documentary. And it's not to discredit the Americans and uphold the Asians, but they're just different cultures. And I think there, there are things that they can learn from each other. But when you try to put one or the other in the different context, it doesn't usually work too well. Um, and so what happened was in the 80s, same thing with China now was happening with Japan. The Japanese came in, they'd set up these factories and it was just a disaster. Like, you know, the, they wanted the workers to get up, you know, at five in the morning and come to the factory at six in the morning and do calisthenics and, 
you know, the American workers are pot They've been drinking all day and then they don't want to move and they just want to stand in their you know, position. And then the union, you know, talks for them and they don't want to follow orders. And it, it's just a, it's not a culture that aligns very well, but they did actually figure it out. And it took, it took a long time, but now the companies in Ohio, like Honda, and they actually feature a couple of guys from Honda coming to visit the Fuyao facility, um, are, to me, they look like they're actually like uh, fairly intelligent, uh, well-disciplined guys. Those Japanese factories, transplant factories, they call them, they were able to actually attract decent talent in America. And I think Fuyao was having this problem in that they couldn't do that. Uh, one, they were getting people who had been laid off from a failing company. Two, a lot of them were desperate because they had worked there for so long, they had no other skills. And so they're getting older workers. And I think China does and had, at the, especially at the time, a pretty bad reputation for how they treat people. And so I don't think they were able to attract the best talent. Um, and this, this sort of like was such an interesting sort of comparison of how China and America work differently. Uh, I highly recommend watching it, but just some of the things I also took note of was again, just the stereotype is true and it's not to say that it's right or wrong, but it's just, it's just a fact that East Asian people are very hierarchical and the way they go about doing their job is basically it's sort of kind of like the meme. It's like, it's almost like a, an, an insect hive. They have leaders, they have objectives. And then if the workers don't meet those, they are punished and they there's through a combination of guilt through a combination of carrots minimally, but mainly sticks, they, they get it done. Uh, and then, this sort of contrast with the American approach, which is very individualistic, the people who walk into the factory, they're wearing like t-shirts. They don't have uniforms in China. They're literally given numbers and they have to like line up and like start talking, you know, like, you know, I'm one, I'm two, I'm three. And then they all sing a song and it's really weird compared to how, you know, Americans want to work. And the stereotype of the Asian sort of work culture is like, okay, you, you do your job, you don't ask questions, uh, you follow orders and that produces cheap, relatively high quality goods that they didn't invent. The contrast is the individualistic approach. The bottom up approach is everybody's arguing. They're talking, not a lot of work is getting done while they're arguing, but the out, the, the benefit of that is that they do come up occasionally with some good ideas because they were allowed to speak. And I think that's a sort of like main difference between the American model, the innovation entrepreneurial model versus the Chinese model, where it's very top down. Um, the question I have going forward is, and I've spoken to some friends about this, but just to repeat some of their words, the question is, can China lead? Because America, I think arguably has been the leader of the past hundred plus years in you know, things that we're talking about in this context of this book from Dalio. But a lot of that was built on, I think, the the bottom-up entrepreneurial innovation debative style that created a lot of the the technology that that drove America. China does not have that culture. However, they have an incredible work ethic. They have a huge emphasis on education. And so what that allows them to do is look at 
somebody who's far out ahead and study them and then outdo what they've done in the past better than they did originally. But the question is once they catch up and they don't have anybody to follow, can they lead? Is this new silk road or whatever they're calling it, belt and road thing actually going to attract people? And I think this is where Zihan sort of comes in and is somewhat right is that, you know, you look at the issue of immigration, for example, and all of us are somewhat critical of immigration in the United States, obviously. But I think we have to recognize is that a lot of the, the growth in technology, for example, in the past 20 years has been driven by immigrants who are very intelligent and were basically brain drained from their country of origin and then set up in Silicon Valley and displaced American workers. And that's sort of the critique, but it did drive a lot of the growth in Silicon Valley and places like that. And historically it's, it's happened in other waves of techno technological innovation. Contrast that with China where they never have had immigrants really, except for weirdos like Jim Rogers and Ray Dalio's son. But they, just they don't have that many people wanting to live there for obvious reasons. They don't speak this frigging hard language. They don't want to live under a country that like welds them into their apartment because they think they have some disease and then lets them burn to death or something. It, it's not a fun place to want to live. Uh, I, I've never felt that about China. Um, as, as weird as India and dysfunctional as India is, I'd probably rather live there just because I can speak my mind more. And Indian people are generally kind of very jovial and, and amusing to live around, um, even though it's <laughs> abject poverty compared to, you know, maybe a Chinese city. But, um, you know, we all value different things. But my question still stands. It's like going forward, you know, is this Fuyao uh, factory where everybody is sort of treated like a number? And there was horror stories from some of the Americans saying like he watched some of his coworkers like, sit on a piece of cardboard that was on fire and then he was still yelled at to like continue working or something. Uh, and if you watch the documentary, you can sort of believe this just based on like how these guys are behaving. Is this the model going forward? Are people going to want to be Chinese? I mean, cause the Chinese are, are pretty damn racist when it comes to, you know, they're, I mean, we, you know, whites get criticized for this stuff. But I think if you've been to China, if you know Chinese people and if this doc, and if you watch this documentary, it, it demonstrates the Chinese people are very proud of who they are. And, I think they have every right to be, by the way, but um, that that is not a climate that's going to attract other people. And, you know, that's fine. But that what that leaves them with is the Chinese then have to come up with the next stuff. And so far, I've not seen evidence that they've been able to do it. And I this is where I sort of agree with Zihan is that like going forward, if, if you equilibrate the cost levels, the cost structures of China and the United States, and in some way, some cases, the United States is ahead of China because they can depend on Mexican labor and immigration um, at this point. And the, because the fact that Chinese labor has gone up so much uh, going forward, is China going to have any advantage because their cost advantage has gone away? I don't think they have an innovation advantage. They do have an education advantage, but that's very backward looking forward looking. I'm not so sure. And then also, again, to parallelize it with Japan, I think Japan had ran into the same problems in the 1990s that China is going to go into soon is because Japan's model was very similar to Chinese is that it was hard work, education, quality emphasis more than Chinese, but nonetheless, the Chinese are okay at that, at least that they can outcompete most people. But when it came to when their costs came up, when they revalued the yen, when the oil price shock kind of hurt their momentum from the financialization that was going on, China blew up. They, they stalled out. They had the, a real estate 
bubble that blew up. China actually just went through one recently. And I see a lot of parallels with Japan, with China, demographically especially as well. So I'm more on actually, not, I'm not in favor of Zog per se, but I think the, the likelihood of um, America's prospects going forward are actually relatively better than they have been recently. And I think China's are relatively worse than they have been recently going forward. That's my take on the two comparisons. What do you guys think? Well, I, I, I thought Adam laid it out pretty well. I, I think there's a tendency that people have because of the conditions of life in America are just, are so nightmarish and soul crushing that people say that, you know, it's just going to end soon that it's on its way out. And I, I think this shit can unfortunately go on for a long time. And I think that similarly, part of that tendency is to overrate the potential rivals to American power and what they're capable of and what their immediate future looks like. I think we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Zihan. I mean, it's sort of a begrudgingly giving the devil is due. I mean, this the Amer- the American people are uh, capable of putting up with a lot of shit. Apparently, I, I don't think that there is going to be any kind of immediate revolutionary challenge to to Zog, and I certainly don't think that we're going to be somehow liberated by, you know, Chang or Ivan. So I think what Adam's assessment is pretty realistic and honest assessment of the facts. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. But what about that spy balloon? <laughs> I couldn't not mention it. <laughs> I I can't. Uh, I don't even want to get into balloon discourse. I've had my <laughs> my fill of balloon talk. What else? What else about Ray Dalio's book? Are we gonna discuss? The, there was there was one weird part um, where he was kind of mentioning the different uh, eras. I'm trying to. I'm just trying to find it. Hold on one sec. So he's he's basically trying to say, oh well, um, the world's gone through these cycles, right? There was the the commercial era before that. We had a bunch of families that ran everything, and and the world was just kind of dictated by by their whims. And you know, I was like, how how is that not still the case on some level? I mean, look at India for example. India is a country that is actually run entirely by a set of families indian politics is a smokescreen uh it's largely yeah it's largely a smokescreen there's a there's a there's a confluence the ambani is the tata like those guys are they they basically each one of them controls nearly an entire industry effectively and they argue and fight amongst themselves they have practical dynasties that run the company for, you know, decades after the founder dies, the, the notion that family structures and large independent families and trusts um, don't play a, as much a role anymore, uh, or that that's a thing of the past, is is just is silly. Uh, also, this idea that countries as we think of them didn't exist yet, also just not practically true in, in a lot of senses. But 
and this is this is like you know something that for example a lot of like weird tradcath types will try and argue that nationalism or whatever is is a new thing invented by uh protestants or freemasons or uh, i don't know but it none of this is accurate this idea that the world has moved beyond family control that we we you know we're in a a world of truly just commercial relations now i mean that's just ridiculous the fact that dalio couldn't figure out a way to transfer control of bridgewater associates to one of his children uh is i mean you know him is him his whole frame is like cope for that fact that he didn't set up a dynasty or something to that effect hmm. also you look at you know the united states in even as early or as late as the early 20th century into the you know the the second half of the gilded age effectively just 100 years ago you still had massive familial control not just uh, at the large scale with large scale families and trusts but oftentimes families were still the dominant structure of the society as a whole you had family businesses you had family farms and sometimes you had fa- small family enterprises and small regional industries or interests it, it was just a big collection of families and most countries did operate that way most countries still operate that way there isn't a tremendous amount of power that's still exerted by specific corporate families and specific business oriented families and cultural families in china despite the presence of the communist party uh, and they're very much ingratiated with one with one Hans, are you familiar? It was there was a book written in like the nineteen thirties uh, called America's Sixty Families. I think yes, something it was written yeah. by his journalist, uh, yeah. yeah, Ferdinand uh, Lundberg is his name. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's they definitely have gone away from uh, obvious political dynasties, yeah, because sure. that's a bad look for their for democracy uber alles. But the fact is, like those are themselves not the real power anyway. Oh yes, also ultimately, so also doesn't might ultimately well. yeah. change. Yeah, and just because sometimes these these aren't necessarily families doesn't mean they're ultimately not you know run by singular individuals. Like there's a whole aspect of his analysis of the change of of structure in socio political life that or you know in, in economic life that it just is not that accurate, and it seems. I, I think Dalio is smart enough to know that as well. There's no way he doesn't being in the role he has been in for many years. So I mean, me, you know, half his clients are probably the people you're talking about. Yeah, so that that is just it's total bullshit. I don't know why he's hawking that, but that's what he's, he's hawking. I think that that's like textbook analysis that he thought, well, I don't want to get into the complicated stuff because then there might be some questions. So I'd rather just give you what you basically get out of like middle school history textbooks. That's not that interesting. His his explanation of the changes in eras is also very like rudimentary. It's really not that well. Or, I mean, it's concise and I guess it's put together, but there's nothing new or inventive or, or interesting about his his historiography here. On that front, I would say that he ultimately does not deliver a great history lesson or a great history book. And maybe the point of the book ultimately is not meant to be a history book or it's not meant to be 
you know, revelatory in historiography. But it would have been interesting if a guy with his resources could have, for example, funded a, a team of historians to do that analysis. I mean, the man is so independent with the wealthy, he could have put together his own historical department. And he could have come up with tomes or volumes of history that he thought people should know about. Instead, he, you know, he writes a book himself that is, you know, clearly not even matching up to his personal level of historical knowledge, if I had to guess. And he hobbles himself at multiple turns very clearly, uh, I, I think, to just not talk about wider issues. And, and then he falls for the China hypnosis at the end. So like I was saying, you know, this is this is a good book. It does rise above general airport econ schlock for CNBC watchers, but it does fall short on being a great book or something, you know, revelatory or, or really interesting. Um, and I'm just it's hard for me to understand why uh, other than he just didn't want to do it. And he just didn't you know, there was some risk or. He didn't want to get into it or he didn't want to be you know, uncomfortable with arriving at certain conclusions. He, um, I don't know, he kind of just hobbles himself. What do you guys think? Well, I think I've, I've given my take on it just to summarize. Um, I think it's a high-level analysis that goes beyond most airport books, but I would generally agree it falls into that overall category of somewhat high level analysis that is intriguing to yuppies basically. So Nick. Well, it's a central conceit of, you know, powerful, wealthy man is going to write a book that is going to let me in on his esoteric knowledge. And that's just, <laughs> that's just not how this works. It's never how this works. You know, it's, I mean, the fact is it's, it's basically illegal to explain with any seriousness or honesty how the American empire functions. You're not allowed to do that. I mean, you're certainly not allowed to do that and have a career. <laughs> certainly not allowed to do that and have a lot of money. No. So it's just like for me, you know, I'm so checked out of the system that it's it's really – uh, it, it shouldn't be surprising to you that I was unable to read this book. Not really. Zion, as far as like popular stuff goes, like Zion's more interesting because he's talking about apocalyptic shit, and that's fun. Yeah. So I can I can I I did read that book as far as the genre goes. Uh, that's that's a little more interesting to me. But he, the, here, here's the sort of uh, that, you know we've reached a yeah. Just sorry, just to to mention like why are they different you, you got to remember how these two guys make their money I, I and i think what is the objective of this book zion's goal is to sell books and speaking tours so he's gonna be i think biased towards the outlandish so i actually i i, I limit his i i sort of put a deflator on all his sort of hyperbolic claims because of that because i think he's biased and I do the opposite with Dalio right. because I think he makes his money actually making bets, which is harder. Um, and being right about it over a long period of time is way harder. Uh, you can get lucky, sure. But the fact that he's got a track record, I think, is more to his credit. And the fact that he's more muted 
I think it's because he's actually being careful about fucking up his, uh, his business. And so I actually inflate his claims, not to say that I agree with all of them, but I, I, I put like sort of a, a positive vector on sort of his multiple on his statements and I put a negative multiple or a, a sort of less than one multiple. I sort of just diminish it with Zion's because their motivations are very different. So Adam, how is it, how do I make a bet on the fact that America is going to get gayer, browner <laughs> and more repressive by Disney stock? <laughs> 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 they recently had Bob Iger come back, so I think that'll help you out. <laughs> Confirm your biases. Yeah, man. I mean, I can't believe they had to drag uh, Iger out of retirement to save this like once impregnable juggernaut of American culture. <laughs> like desperate move. Not looking good, if I had to, if I had to say. Yeah. Yeah, it is not Walt's company anymore, that's for sure. And Roy ain't really putting up much of a fight. I think it's his brother. Oh, no, the, the Disney family themselves are like all weird, weird gay people now. So uh, much yeah, like the Rockefellers. Yeah. Well, one of them, one of them uh, when, the, when the drama with, um, with, uh, you know, uh, DeSantos and uh, and Disney was going on in Florida. Um, uh, I think there was a member of the Disney family who is a troon that went on national television and announced that they were a, a troon, and they had wait cut their dick off, or I don't I don't know wait, something that, like that. that that's they a just, transsexual or a yeah, a, like, like a. Quad, quad, uh, quadroon. Like what? What is that? Oh, no, It's it's a well. It's it's like a a cartoon facsimile of a human being. Yeah. Oh, so he's like one of the uh, the theme park uh, mascots. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Except yeah. Instead of putting something on near children. Yeah, he's removed (laughs) things or something. (laughs) But yeah, I think that the Disney family's got is like all in on the gay agenda. So. It's not really all that. That's not, that was, you know, that's not, there ain't any resistance from them. I I have a question for you, Adam. So, so, like, I get the, this is kind of a, when I was reading this book, I was like, oh God, this is, (laughs) this is very Adam. I can see why, why he has assigned me this. Uh, I'm curious (laughs) if you think that somebody like this, this archetype of this, of uh, a Bray Dalio if this is uh, something that's going away now, you know, oh. a creature is an Italian, Italian American, yeah. uh, creature of the boom New York. of the eighties yeah. enjoyed, you know, yeah. Yelling at people on the trading floor and, right. you know, uh, doing the whole, uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio bit. Um, movie. Kind of. And yeah, kind of, I mean, the, Technically, he's on the that, buy that, side. Uh, you know, bliss, blissfully ignorant, side, like but, intelligent yeah. man, but like largely ignorant. Of right. He's a boomer. Of his he's purview, a boomer. You know. Is it going away? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, what's going to yeah. replace it is maybe the next question uh, or the harder question to answer. Um, well, I mean, the specific archetype. Obviously, the boomers are going away, but the yeah. the specific archetype of the the sort of hard-headed 
finance man who is not a Jew? Um, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Because the younger crop, but, the, the younger yeah. crop of these people uh, seem to be, you know, they're very effeminate. They have yeah. like uh, bouncy yoga balls in their right. offices. That's you true. Know, you know the bit. I mean, you know the bit better than I do. <sighs> oh God, barely. I I I couldn't stomach it much better than you. But um, you know, I think you ask an interesting question. Is like, is there going to be a paradigm shift in the type of investor? I mean, I can only cite examples. I haven't really done any, you know, rigorous quantitative analysis of the type of fund managers out there. That's basically, I think, your question. It's like, who's managing money now? Um, obviously, you know, the usual suspects are very overrepresented in terms of their population share in this Does industry. Does he talk about ESGs? Sorry no, to no. And to, 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 again, to his sort relevant. of like wimpiness, like he just doesn't want to touch rails, you know, that are electrified. But I mean, there's certainly in many of the sort of lower rungs of finance where they don't he doesn't want much, to touch much. electrified pianos. <laughs> uh, he has got a lot to lose. Okay, let's just put it that way. And and the people that don't um, are more than happy to you know knock Kathy Wood and ESG investing and all this crap that was sort of faddish, which is just you know what Wall Street does. It it, it turns up a new fad and and sells it to you and you know suckers some people into buying it. That, it's happened throughout you know millennia. Like money men do that all the time. Um, but to the broader question of like, what is the sort of type of investor? Um, I think, I think there is a trend to this more ESG stuff, but there is some pushback because they've basically not delivered returns. And I think that ultimately for anybody who's going to have longevity in wall street, you gotta, you gotta put up or shut up. I mean, nobody listens to you if you don't make any money, they, they just don't. Why, why the fuck would they? Um, and so it's going to come down to who's making the most money. And frankly, um, Dalio is sort of an exception in that he actually is a little bit more well-known than a lot of these guys, but he is somewhat representative of the type that has made money and that his firm is largely a quantitative light firm. But my point is a lot of the most successful firms out there are basically just these kind of like very quiet people uh, that don't really go on Twitter, that run computer algorithms all day. And Citadel Investments, um, the D.E. Shaw, or Jeff Bezos actually worked before he founded Amazon, um, just the quant shops, the, those guys are usually very successful. Uh, and I think that's probably going to grow, especially as artificial intelligence is thrown at this crap. Even though there's some evidence that some of the AI funds are not doing very well. Um, I, I think... There's always going to be, though, uh, a guy that like wants to get his name out there. Warren Buffett is sort of, you know, a good example of that. I mean, he he definitely cultivated the press. Um, not a Jew. Um, track record speaks for itself. Um, but he's dying, and so going forward, I think it, it it will be more tech heavy. I think there will be more people who espouse more progressive ideologies. Um, but they're not going to be able to beat the guys that actually put up numbers. Um, and I think that's always just going to be how this shit works. It's like, if you, if you deliver returns, people will give you a book deal. If you don't, nobody's going to give you a deal and nobody's going to buy your book. So that's just my take on it. 
he mentions artificial intelligence a few times in the part of the book that I did read. He, he does, he and into that. you know, I mean, basically, he's not a computer scientist uh, by any stretch of the imagination. He's just kind of a guy who is smart enough to know he's not smart in certain areas, and so I think he hires people and develops kind of very basic heuristics to like help him understand things. But in doing so, he basically understands what AI is, at least in the modern incarnation of AI is that all it is, is just you throw a bunch of data at a computer that knows how to organize it into a pattern. And then if you throw similar data at that pattern recognition system, that pattern recognition system will will tell you and make a prediction based on what you've already given it, what the likely outcome will be. He's smart enough to understand that that's what it is. And then that's going to be useful. Just like, you know, creating a spreadsheet lets you, you know, draw little simple charts and stuff and, and see, oh, you know, the direction is this way. And it, it's just an extension of that. Um, does he know how to develop a neural networking system? I doubt it. Does he have to? No. I mean, his job is basically, you know, management and, and promotion of his fund. Um, does he truly understand the implications of this stuff at a high level? But at a deep level, I don't, I don't really think he's an expert on it. So I don't know. That's just my read on AI for him. What did you think, Hans? Closing thoughts. Do you think his children will will marry Chinese? <laughs> uh, he probably wouldn't have a problem with that. Uh, the likelihood of that is um, depends on how alpha they are. <laughs> but uh, given that they they have uh, you know an inheritance that's going to give them a lot of uh, sexual market value, I doubt they'll they'll need to do that, you know, unless they're like, I don't know, like really desperate, but you know, probably not, probably not, but it's possible. I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you think that Dalio is an archetype that will be uh, more or less common? I, I think, yeah, I think he is like a going extinct. I think, I think it's but a to, to, to what, to what degree and, uh, and, and to who will de- replace him. I think the the barrier to entry. I mean, I, I did check briefly. Is you know, I, I went to his, I smashed that early life on his Wikipedia. I guess his father was a a jazz musician. Yeah. You know, so he was. He didn't come from money or anything. And he uh, worked his way. I mean, I think that in general, that whole archetype. Yeah. Of, of Gentile, you know, white boys in America. Right, like working their way into big money. Right, not having is, pedigrees. I think that's over. Yeah, it's it seems less yeah. common. I think we're becoming. It's, it's I agree. Over. No, I think we're generally becoming more of a credentialed society where you have to have like the right connections and elite schools and, uh, frankly, just a, a more quantitative background these days. And like, like I said, like Wall Street hires people who freaking studied like chemical engineering over people who studied economics like sometimes because they they want that brain that can basically compete with the the algorithms or build the algorithms um and you know dalio is probably not one of them although he has a very strong intuition i think and obviously he's been very capable what he does but i think today the bias is definitely skewed towards more of the that kind of credential type, um, and, you know, increasingly less, less Caucasian. So, 
machine machine capitalism. That's what a lot of hedge fund managers call it, actually. Yeah, the machine. Oh, really? Yeah, not even joking. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like living in a sci-fi novel. I mean, it's all of the dystopian deterioration of normal social life compounded with like increasing global disasters, repressive, ever-pervasive totalitarian police and surveillance state. I mean, what, what, do you, what is there to even say about it anymore? That's why I'm just so unimpressed, though, by these guys who, who don't touch it. I mean, if you don't touch controversial material, then you're not really saying much. I mean... There may be little to, to, to you, to you, but I things think that you've that learned from your yeah. life that are, yeah, yeah, to me. But that's what matters, is what I think. So, <laughs> I, you know, that's, <laughs> it doesn't impress me. It doesn't interest me. And, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I just like I, I would really appreciate if somebody, you know, they, they don't have to dedicate. I'm not saying like you need to write a book about the subjects particularly that interest me. It's that you should you prove to me that you're ser a serious person it by at least touching them. Like you could be writing a book about gardening and I expect to, to see some material in there. Well, okay. Th this is, Content. this is sort of a repeat of what we've already covered, but I'll, I'll sort of maybe try to put a new spin on it. Um, I think what you're reminding me of is the sort of difference between like scholarship and authority. And they're not always the same thing. And I think uh, in terms of communication, oftentimes people look to authority as opposed to actual truth or scholarship. Um, and it's sort of that like, uh, it's not a dichotomy, but it's sort of like a, a double-edged sword or a trade-off between do you seek the truth and, and speak the truth or do you, or do you first seek authority to then speak some truth, which will actually have a wider audience and impact because you have that authority. I think you and I actually sort of get into that like circular debate a lot. And I think you lean more yeah. on the scholarship yeah. truth aspect, which I have a lot of respect for, by the way. But I also fear that if you don't have that authority and success, like people won't listen. Living in a fucking barrel in the city center telling you the straight dope right 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 and, and I, I actually listen to those people but i also recognize that most people don't and you know you could say that those people don't matter but it's like if that's like 90 percent of your well, population most people I mean, are they, they, paid they not to listen to them yes correct through their job through you know everything i mean uh that, that's right yeah. but again do you want to be right first and then get power i mean sure but i don't know if it's possible i would argue that you need to get power before you can do the right thing unfortunately because that's just how the system works that's kind of my take on it yeah i mean i guess it really comes down to whether or not uh, ray dalio's grandchildren uh, have squinty eyes or not <laughs> Well, this this comes down to a evolutionary strategy. Um, if he's got more than one kid, you know, he doesn't mean you don't have to bet on one number on roulette. You you can bet on more than one, right? So, 
I guess that's a hedge fund, uh, hedge fund mindset. <laughs> building a family and uh, pretty having much a community. Is. Well, literally, hedge fund means you're hedging your bets. So maybe that's what he's doing. Yeah. yeah. I don't think we really need these people anymore. I don't think we ever needed them. I'm sympathetic to that view. Yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do a final derail and have you like, justify to me hedge funds because it's just, we know how this conversation will go. So there's I no know. point. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd like to see. I'd like to see a decrease in the financial I, sector, but I don't want to see it go to zero. I'll yeah. just put it that way. I think there's some value in finance, but I think it's way too big in the United States. As Dalio's book actually. Uh, quantitatively shows he doesn't really highlight it verbally, but he actually, through his analysis, shows that the United States basically its only fucking strength is finance, and that's horrible. You know, I'd rather have bridges that you know don't fall over. Uh, that's China's strength. So, you know, give the give the finance guy credit where credits due. I mean, he, I think he recognizes something you know correct in that aspect at least. <laughs> Yeah. 